Good morning and welcome to Wanda's Picks, a black arts and cultural program of the African Sisters Media Network. And we are going to be opening our show with an interview with the, um, uh, I guess, the uh, executive producer of a new film, Mossville, When Great Trees Fall, which is um, having its um, Bay Area premiere as a part of the San Francisco Green Film Festival, which is continuing through Sunday in San Francisco. Uh, this film, Mossville, When Green, when Great Trees Fall, uh, directed by Alexander um, uh, Glustrom, is a really uh, important film. It, uh, it looks at uh, a centuries-old black community, um, which uh, has been contaminated and uh, and we look at the last citizen um of that town actually the last two citizens um uh this this town contaminated and uprooted by petrochemical plants and uh and the film looks at how these people of african descent this town was founded by um formerly enslaved african people how they come to terms with the loss of of their ancestral home and one man, um, Stacy uh, Ryan, he um, is standing in the way of a toxic uh, petrochemical plant's expansion, and he refuses to give up. And again, um, uh, the expected guest at the uh, screening is um, uh, Michelle Lanier, and um, and it's going to be preceded by a short, Lowland Kids, uh, directed by Sandra. Winter, and uh, and this happens um, on Saturday tomorrow uh, at the Roxy Theater, September twenty eighth, three thirty p.m. But what's really wonderful is that before this screening, there's going to be um, a program uh, at one o'clock, and um, and let me get you the name of the program. <laughs> I should have already had this together, but um, I don't. Let's see. Um, let's see. Uh, I was looking for that. Um, yeah, and so um, Michelle and I had a really great conversation a few days ago, and uh, yeah, and um, and so I'm going to play that interview, and then I'm going to rebroadcast. Um, Wednesday show where we spoke to um, Andrew Saito, whose play El Rio is having a preview tonight at Brava Center, Brava Theater for the Arts Center in the Mission in San Francisco, and then tomorrow is opening night, and um, the play is going to run through October, the end of October, almost uh, the 20th, and and Andrew Andrew is going to be back. He was on his way to the airport. And then we speak to uh, Leslie and Damien about the closing weekend of A Midsummer Night's Dream, uh, celebrating the 30th anniversary of Marin Shakespeare Company. And um, uh, so we had a really great conversation. Uh, What's about A Midsummer Night's Dream, which uh, definitely uh, sort of looks at um, um, women um, having – Say over what happens to to their persons, and um, and and this all people of color cast, and it's set in 
sort of looks like Africa, a country in Africa, and uh, the um, the costumes are phenomenal. Um, the choreography is fabulous, and uh, it is a really, really, really wonderful, um, wonderful um, pr- production. And uh, you don't want to miss it. And it closes this weekend. There's a school time performance today, I believe. And then there are matinees and evening and Sunday is 4 p.m. And there's going to even be a Shakespeare dinner, I think, on Sunday or tomorrow. I know you should go to the website and check it out. <laughs> but that's going to be really be awesome. And then we close our, our, our program with an interview with uh, Stella Heath, who um, has a CD release party tonight at the Red Poppy Art House in the mission. Um, but then she's going to have a show at Feinstein's at um, Hotel Nico. And um, it's going to be, uh, I think it's October 10th. Uh, it's a, um, it's a, it's a Thursday. And, uh, and she's got the Billie Holiday Project, which has been touring. You might have caught it or you might have said, oh, man, I missed it. Well, it's coming to you really close. It's going to be in San Francisco. And so you don't want to, um, to miss that, um, uh, that program. So we, we close with, with the talk with her so hopefully we'll be able to get to everything and i'm looking i'm on the website for uh, greenfilmfest.org and i'm looking for the um the programs oh i know how i did it i did it day by day right (laughs) you can you can go to the website and you know it's really user friendly and you can actually um uh, do it by the calendar, and you can make sure that you don't miss anything. And the film selections are always phenomenal, and um, and they are equally phenomenal this this season as well. And um, wow, and there's so many films that are happening at the same time. You think like, oh my gosh, how am I going to do all that? So um, so there's the um, let's see, Impact Film. No, that's not the one. Let's see. Um, Oh, yeah. Um, They're going to have a couple of impact film forums. So the first one, and they're all at Manny's, and uh, the first one, the one I mentioned earlier on in this this, um, monologue, (laughs) uh, with with the uh, the executive producer, um, uh, Michelle Lanier, and other directors, um, is at 1 o'clock. It's a 90-minute... conversation and it's uh accountable filmmaking is the topic considering mosswood and that's uh at one o'clock it's a free event and it's at manny's which is right across the street i believe from the roxy which is where the film is screening but manny's is located at 3092 16th street in san francisco so um so yeah and then uh the film is at the roxy right across the street at 3:30, and so um so that's going to be really, really phenomenal, and uh, yeah. So that's the that's the plan, and um, I uh, <laughs> I, I have something I want to I want to read to you, um, and then I'll go ahead and play this interview. Uh, Welcome to beautiful downtown Mossville, Stacy Ryan says Riley. Population one. At one time, Mossville, Louisiana, was a thriving, self-sufficient, historically black community, teeming with gardens, grand fruit trees, and families. But since petrochemical industries started snatching up affordable real estate nearby, the community has begun to wither. Ryan's neighbors 
began to leave. At first one by one, then in droves, but he boldly refuses to budge. Soon he finds himself all alone, surrounded by a smoldering, hellish industrial wasteland that has gobbled up Mossville's once um, bucolic neighborhoods. He is cut off from power, supplies, and community, but Ryan stands his ground even while living rough in his own home. This story of one man's valiant resistance is at once intimately personal and vast in scope, exposing the links between race and environmental injustice, not just in the U.S., but across the globe. And uh, the person who wrote that is T.A.W. All righty, so here's the interview. Yes, I can hear you just fine. Okay, excellent. I just love your bio. Um, you know, oh. uh, yeah, Michelle Lanier is a documentary doula. My daughter just had a baby. Yes. I love doulas. <laughs> Helping makers birth films. And wow, you you've do, you've done so much. And do you mind if I just read it um out loud? I, I don't mind at all. Okay. So, um it uh, says, you have served on the faculty of the Center for Documentary Studies at Duke University since 2000. Um, Michelle uses her background as an oral historian and folklorist to connect communities around personal narratives and cultural expression. She has traveled to Panama and Ghana to document African diaspora funerary, funerary traditions. And her ethnographic work in a South Carolina Gullah community led to her role as a liaison to the Gullah Geechee Cultural Heritage Corridor. Growing up in a family that includes veterans of five American wars has inspired her current work in training students to collect veterans' narratives through a service learning course. In 2000, Michelle successfully advocated for legislation creating the North Carolina African American Heritage Commission which she led as its founding executive director. As a seasoned public humanities and museum professional in 2018, Michelle was named as the first African-American director of all of North Carolina's 25 state-owned historic sites. Michelle is also a proud founding member, along with her daughter, uh, Eden, of a multi-media and multi-modal coalition called, is it, D, how do you pronounce it? Dawada? Dawada. Dawada. Ah, nice. The documentary, the docu- Documentarians of African Descent Alliance. Wow. So, yeah. And, yeah, it's just, you know, it's just breathtaking, you know, just reading your bio. And then I looked at your, you know, your team. Oh, my goodness. And and I was looking at that big charity. I'm like, I was born there. What? <laughs> like, you were, no, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. And I remember oh, when they God. killed those people, you know, during Katrina. Well, let's euthanize them now, right? That was horrible. I um, cannot wait to tell my film team mm-hmm. that you were born at Big Charity. That will mean so much to our director, Alex Blustrom, and our producer, Catherine Ryerson, mm-hmm. worked on both Big Charity and Mossville. Mm. And in fact, it was because of Big Charity that I even got in, got into the documentary doula work. So the, your birthplace is the reason I'm a documentary doula. Wow! Wow! Yeah, my brother was born there. 
I don't I don't know if my mother my mother was born at home I think in the country, and my father was born there. Yeah, yeah. All of our families. I don't know if there are any other hospitals, but yeah, they were born in the hospital. They were born to charity. Wow. Mhm. Yeah, yeah. And and then just to like you know as I'm looking at the bios and I'm like charity. Is that my charity? <laughs> your charity. That's your charity. That's my charity. Like, oh, my gosh. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, these stories, they're so important. I mean, Mossville, who would have known? I didn't know Mossville. I didn't even know about this town in Louisiana. You know, unincorporated, next door to this other town that's allowing these, you know, multinational corporations to pollute the environment. Yeah, it's crazy. And then, and the fact that, you know, um, this this place, uh, Sausal, is a South African agency, and they're doing the same thing in that place in South Africa that has a name that means you don't return, right? In translation, it's a place you don't return. Yes. And I'm thinking, how can we have relationships with like apartheid, you know, like how can we have a relationship? How can that governor, the governor of Louisiana, you know, um, okay this destruction of community? I mean, like in killing of all these people, yeah. like horribly, they're dying horribly. Yeah. I mean, poor Stacy, like the last man standing, right? And then the sister who couldn't find a house. You know, I think there was like two of them, right? Like, finally she found something. Well, not really. Um, like, she went to stay with her daughter. And, and then he finally settled because he wanted to not die because he has his boy. Yes, and, you know, it, it was really important for us to, I mean, I hear you saying poor Stacey. So we do have a lot of empathy and outrage around Stacey. Fight, and I hope people will come out to the Green Film mm-hmm. Festival yeah. on um, Saturday afternoon mm-hmm. to see it um, at the Roxy. Um, I guarantee you, if you see the film, it'll it'll change your life because there, this, you will we you will feel that you are living with this man mm-hmm. who is so brave. Yeah. So Stacy does suffer um, a lot, and and we document that, but he also is a story of heroism mm-hmm. and resistance and persistence and resilience. And he's also one of the most brilliant human beings that any of us have ever met. Mm-hmm. Um, Stacy is not going to be at the festival because he's helping people who have survived Hurricane Dorian. Mm-hmm. Um, he is the kind of person who wants to be in service to others, even his desire to hold on to family land, black family land Mm -hmm. in a historically black community was about making a statement um, for himself, for his son, for his ancestors. Mm -hmm. Um, So he has a strength of heart and spirit and conviction that, you know, while his, you know, I don't want to ruin it for people who are going to go see it, but while he, you know, some of his dreams do not come true, some of his dreams do come true. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think it's important for people to see the film, 
Um, it is a, a film that will break your heart and stand you up straight at the same time, and it helps for us to see the personal implications of environmental racism. Mm-hmm. When we talk about the environment, when we talk about, you know, oil refineries or Cancer Alley or environmental justice or climate change, those are big phrases that very few of us have, you know, very personal, intimate descriptive um, narrative to anchor our outrage and anchor our advocacy and anchor our own personal changes to what we do on a daily basis with our own lives to help move the needle on on, um, environmental racism, climate change, um, people being treated as disposable all over the world, particularly mm-hmm. poor people, black and brown people, the elderly abled. Um, and so our goal through this film is certainly to tell the story, but it's to tell the story with a purpose, mm-hmm. to, to get people to pay attention to what is happening right under all of our noses. Yeah. I mean, I'm so moved when every time I see the film, and some of the things that you see that Stacy has to do to survive, there are these moments in the film mm-hmm. where you we have um, a drone camera that lifts way up high, and all you see is this vast wasteland of construction in this one strong, brave, tender-hearted but bold black man mm-hmm. who refuses to give up, and it's so powerful. Yeah. Um, and then the story of the Fisher and Jackson family. It's a very strong family of black women mm-hmm. who are like, we will continue to find a way to tell the story of who we are. And they're almost, really, I don't think it's an exaggeration to say they are refugees mm-hmm. of big oil companies. They are refugees of the greed of our nation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, because I, it's just so wonderful sort of hearing about this town that was founded by formerly enslaved African people who, um, you know, so were looking for a place, you know, where they could could be free, you know, and not be bothered. And so they found this land, and I, I just, you know, when I heard about, you know, sort of like think about the trees and all the, it was sound like an Eden, you know, all the fruit and Mm-hmm. You know, just the beautiful landscape, and yes. and then when and then and then when the the pollutants come in, how all the trees die, you know, and, and then Eden and then, turns to hell. Right, right, and that and that cute um, little um, what was it a beaver? Um, that's sort of like a mascot. Yeah, the little it's little stuffed animal. Yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, you know, there are these elements to the film. Again, I hope your um, listeners will come, but you'll see these tender moments that just um, really humanize this experience. But to back up to what you said a moment ago Mm -hmm. about how this was a strong, vibrant, self-reliant, self-determined black community, and it was not an anomaly. You could see that all over the the nation, particularly in the South. Mm -hmm. Um, A lot of times when we talk about the South during the Jim Crow era, we focus on the story of racial violence, mm-hmm. um, but there was there were a lot of black townships and communities that were about, you know, how do we create an oasis space? Mm-hmm. 
for black survival and for black entrepreneurship and black community and education and worship and families. Um, and that they had that there. Um, mm-hmm. And you'll see archival images from people's personal archives. We all have our personal archives that we're blessed. Yes. You know, family photos, someone's obituary, someone's high school graduation um, program. And so I'm so proud of um, our director, Alex Gledstrom, and our producers, um, Catherine Ryerson and Katie Matthews and Daniel Bennett, who helped to forge a kind of trust within the Moscow community in a way that allowed us to have access to some of these personal photographs and um, to say this is what this is what was um, here. Mm-hmm. You know, this is what was made vulnerable um, by the encroachment of these these industries. And it's not a simple story because mm-hmm. you do have black people who were saying, listen, I need a job. I need a career. I need to feed my family today. I understand that these chemicals are killing us in the long run and encroaching on our lands. But today, right now, this offers an opportunity for economic survival. And so there are many black people from the Mossville area who made and make a career for themselves because of these plants these oil refinery and petrochemical plants. So you have some, you know, residents of Mossville and the communities around Mossville who are very loudly um, activists and resistant to these industries. And then you have some who are really appreciative of these industries because of the economic impact um, that they feel you know, they, they receive as, as a result of jobs. And then you have others who will maybe feel conflicted, um, who are like, I wish they weren't here, but this is the only option I have to work. Mm-hmm. So it's a complicated story as well. Um, but we decided to focus really on the story of Stacy, the story of the Fisher and Jackson family um, that are connected, and then the stories of the, the land, mm-hmm. um, and and the story of Sassel, this company, yeah. the South African mm-hmm. company. We take um, a moment in the film to literally send a film team to Sekunda, mm-hmm. to Sasselberg, to see what this specific company is doing mm-hmm. to the planet yes. um, and to black and brown bodies in South Africa. And, and there is a direct linkage um, between how, you know, people are suffering in South Africa and resisting. It's directly connected to what we see happening in Louisiana. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it is really unfortunate that um, in order to survive, you know, economically and have, you know, a quality of life that's um, something that, you know, makes makes you happy, makes you be able to take care of your children. Um, you have to have like a, a literally shorten your lifespan because the people in the um, the town next to the un- um, uh, unincorporated uh, Mossville, 
they're all saying, oh, no, well, you know, we have these illnesses and, yeah, we have a lot of cancer. But it's not connected to the, to the uh, you know, to the, to the uh, plant at all. And a lot of times people have been made to say that. So I'll give you an example. Hmm. If someone um, says, okay, I will take money for my property, um, money being offered up by these petrochemical plants. Mm -hmm. Say, okay, I'll take money for my property, my family land, um, because this company is now expanding in a way that they're buying up neighborhoods. When you take that money, often you may be asked to sign something that says you will never do that company. Oh. for any sort of health-related um, issues mm -hmm. as a result of the chemical exposure. Mm -hmm. And so imagine you slowly but surely lose neighbors, friends and family leave, you're feeling more and more isolated. And in Stacy's cases, if you watch the film, he also starts to, to lose basic utilities, um, access to basic utilities. Mm -hmm. You're being offered a very small, tiny amount of money for your property, not enough money to even go and buy any sort of home anywhere near where your where your loved ones are. Um, it's a dire situation. And um, if you just out of desperation or need or whatever is the impetus, do take that money, you may be asked to sign a document that says, I know I'm, I'm giving, giving you land for this money, mm -hmm. not enough to actually buy an equivalent home, and I'm also signing a document that says I will not sue you for any chemical exposure. Mm. Okay. Okay. Yeah, and but it's I, a requirement. Yeah, but I'm it's talking... It's a requirement to get the money. But I'm not talking about, you know, the places where... Because um, if you look at, like, surely when people see the film... And they compare Mossville and how, you know, Stacy's home, you know, his trailer and the fence that he erected around, you know, his, his property. And right outside of that, they had, you know, the, um, um, the front, you know, had all these, these big, um, you know, big uh, trucks, you know, moving, moving dirt, yeah. like right outside of me, like it was. You know, it was yeah. always noisy, and then he could see, yeah. you know, all the the fire and electrical. It looked like yeah. something from something from a, a movie in something outer space. Something from an Octavia Butler book. Ah, yeah, you know, okay. right, you know, totally. Something, <laughs> you know, post-apocalyptic. Mm -hmm. um, it you you know when people see the film, part of their response is, "This doesn't even look real," but it is. Mm-hmm. Um, why do we not have a connection to it? Many of us who are privileged enough to live away from what we call fence line communities. Fence line communities is basically any community that is along the fence line of a major industrial complex, mm -hmm. which means you're exposed to whatever chemicals that are in the air, water, or soil. Mm -hmm. um, and sometimes all, in all, all of the above. Um, this is real life. You know, it looks like some sort of Hollywood, you know, to 20, you know, to 2,150, you know, what, what year is it? But when this is happening right now under our noses, um, it's, 
it's astonishing. So we, Wanda, we've seen that people have had a variety of responses to the film. Uh-huh. We've had some people that go, this is so heartbreaking and tough to watch that they actually don't even, it's like they have, they feel like they have to disengage. Mm-hmm. And then we have some people who watch it and get so angry and they're like, what can I do to help? And that's the audience we're really looking for is people who go, I can't sit still mm-hmm. seeing this. We don't want to tie it up in a little bow and say, oh, you should feel good about yourself for just seeing this film. We want you to leap out of your seats and say, I have to do something. Mm-hmm. And part of our next phase of work is to really um, have some some strong action items that people can all, you know, take hold of to say, okay, you want to do something, here's what you can do. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Yeah, because... Because this year's um, Green Film Festival, San Francisco Green Film Festival, is looking at, you know, sort of um, the the the, um, the whole idea of of home, and um, and 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 just you know your film, it just shows how, you know, there there's nothing sacred about you know the way government sees home i mean if if there's an economic value in displacement then oh well you're gone and doesn't matter how much you protest doesn't matter uh you know how the plant the chemicals are killing people i mean like literally like people are dying in their 40s Uh, it it doesn't matter um yeah daniel bennett is one of our producers as i mentioned before yes and, it, and he's a critical part of our team, one, because he's a phenomenal photographer. Mm-hmm. Um, but he's an African-American man from Mossville, and it was so important for us to have someone from Mossville right. on our team. Mm-hmm. And um, we have experienced through Daniel um, firsthand what it means, Certainly through Stacey, we've experienced what it means to, to lose a lot of family members mm-hmm. back to back, extremely young. Yeah. Um, and then with Dan- with Daniel, you know, we've experienced that too, that mm-hmm. even on the way to the international premiere of the film, Mossville, yes. and Great Tree Fall, um, in Durham at Full Frame Film Festival, um, he lost someone. Mm-hmm. He lost a relative on the way to the festival. Mm-hmm. And so this is real, immediate, devastating, and and there's something also strange, but there's something very beautiful about the story mm-hmm. because Stacy and the Fisher Jackson family allowed us such intimate access to them, and we see this indomitable spirit that lives out in them. Mm-hmm. I can't help but feel braver. I can't help but feel that I must lean into the possibilities of what we can accomplish if we just continue to say no to injustice. Mm-hmm. And so they inspire me. Mosco inspires me. Um, Mosco lives inside of me. Mosco has changed my life. The way that Big Charity um, changed my life to mm-hmm. see what human beings can do when we stand together mm-hmm. and are in a, in a spirit of determination to survive. 
um, that was the story of the charity during Hurricane Katrina. Mm-hmm. And that is the story of Mossville. Um, there are still a few people who are lingering at the edges of Mossville trying to make it home. Mm-hmm. Um, and there will always be Mossville that will live inside the hearts and bodies and minds of future generations, current generations, and, and now us as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was wondering, um, I just love how the film begins. <laughs> Um, yeah, it's, and, and the sort of, you know, um, since you are, uh, when I was reading, um, you know, your bio, you know, it talks about your project when you, um, uh, let's see, when you, uh, travel to Panama and Ghana to document African diaspora funerary traditions, and, and, and I'm a person, um, that, that loves cemeteries and, you know, and, and the funerary. Very New uh, Orleans thing to love. Uh, yeah, certainly. <laughs> and yeah. and so, you know, that we start, you know, in a cemetery and, and speak to, um, you know, the uh, the owner of, of that particular um, uh, resting place for so many um, Mosswood, Mossville um, uh, residents. And I was wondering, I just kept on thinking, where is this, cemetery and relationship like like is it in it's in Mossville what's going to happen to it yeah oh my gosh you know what that's a phenomenal question that's a really important question um so right now it's okay I think it's quite overgrown but access to it the last when I I did get to see it and the access to it was a little tricky Mm -hmm. um I did not film that particular scene, so our director and I believe there were other people on camera in support of him mm-hmm. who were there that day. Um, but I have been out to that cemetery with um, Alex, our director, um, and I believe there were several, I think there were there was a whole group of us, producers and executive producers and some other folks from Mossville, including mm-hmm. Daniel. And... Um, Access to that funeral, that cemetery, that's a really important question. Mm-hmm. We have a, um, we can't announce her name yet, but we do have an impact producer who's coming on board mm-hmm. to help us think through how do we continue to use the film yes. as a tool. Mm-hmm. And you're just reminding me that that's a question that we need to talk to her about is like how can we mm-hmm. um, think about what feels basic to many of us, accessing the bare grounds of your ancestors feels basic. But I grew up part of my childhood in Gullah community, as you as you referenced, mm-hmm. and part of the devastation of what's happened in some of those communities. And similarly, they're extremely resilient and brilliant and beautiful people uh, who refuse to do anything other than, than live boldly. Um, however, there's also the the tragedy side of that triumph. And the tragedy is that there are Gullah burial grounds that people cannot access, Mm -hmm. um, that are in gated communities, that are on golf courses. Um, And so this is not a new story. One of the things that's really important for us, one of the elements that's important for us to highlight is that Mossville is not an anomaly. It's Mm -hmm. not um, a standalone story. It's a part of a larger story of how environmental racism works and environmental racism impacts the globe um and 
I consider what's happened in Gullah community, even at the hands of the tourism industry, is it to be a kind of environmental racism in a different way. Because mm-hmm. so it's taking an environment and, and objectifying it in a way and marketing it in a way that alienated, you know, people who have been living there in freedom from the time at, right after the Civil War. Right. And so um, I'm going to take your question back to our team and say, you know, this is something we need to explore. So I, I'm grateful for you bringing that up mm-hmm. because it's something that, that I'm aware of, mm-hmm. but it's something that I couldn't say to you today. This is the plan to how to preserve that cemetery and make sure that um, all my civilians and their children and children's children will always have access to that space. Mm-hmm. So thank you for bringing that up. I'm going to take that back to my team. Right, yeah. I just sort of think about, you know, um, that whole story, you know, around Antigone, you know, wanting wanting to bury her brother and um, and not leave him lying in the street. And then what happened to Mike Brown, right? in Ferguson, you know, him just lying there, um, you know, and, and you know, and, and just sort of as, as African people, how, you know, you know, we we have a special kinship for the beginnings and the ends because it's all the cycle, right? <laughs> and Absolutely. You know, you're reminding me of something else. Mm-hmm. Um, I can't remember what episode this is, but there is an episode in the – beautifully um, produced um, series pose that talks about, that, you know, presents the um, ballroom drag scene of the 80s and early 90s in New York, and many of the characters are black and brown people, you know, mm-hmm. Afro-Latina, mm-hmm. And, um, and there's a scene during this moment when the AIDS epidemic be- becomes, you know, more known, but people are terrified of what, um, you know, how do you contract it? And and I didn't realize this until I watched the the show, Mm -hmm. that there's this whole, there was or maybe is this whole burial space outside of New York City Mm -hmm. for unclaimed bodies of people who died of AIDS. And so there's this one, yeah, I had no idea. I want to learn more about it because goodness, and Mm -hmm. that people would come and leave little stones with people's names on it because you wouldn't know where is my friend, where is my lover. Mm-hmm. And so they would leave these stones. And so, um, and a lot of those people were black, black people. You know, they were, of course, white as well, but many of them were black and brown people. And so you're right. The beginnings and ends and, and the continuity of spirit, the fact that, oh, my goodness, at our premiere, Wanda, in at Full Frame, Film Festival in Durham, uh-huh. Stacy Kane oh. with his son, Andre. Oh, lovely. It was amazing. Hmm. And when, when, we, when the show finished and there were tears, there was sobbing, there was standing ovation, there was honoring of Stacy and his son. Hmm. And Stacy began his remarks. We gave him, of course, the first words to be spoken after the film. Mm-hmm. Those were, that was his chance to, to speak. And then he spoke to his ancestors. Mm-hmm. You know, he spoke directly to them, not about them, to them. And right. so this notion of the ancestry um, speaking through descendants, through the land, even through this film, mm-hmm. is powerful. And I know for me, 
as as a woman of the African diaspora, it holds me accountable to something much bigger than me. Um, I feel I feel that I must conduct myself extremely thoughtfully, carefully, ethically, um, certainly in everything that I do. But this holds a a, a greater weight for me. Uh, there's a larger gravitas because. We are literally holding the stories of, of people's ancestors in this in this film mm-hmm. in a way that feels very very important to, without exaggeration, the survival of the earth mm-hmm. of humankind. Yes. I know that sounds dramatic, but it actually is true when it comes to the story. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, because um, in this story, um, you know, Mossville. Um, and I just love the trees part, um, you know, when trees, when great trees fall, because I think about trees as people, you know, when a great tree falls, you know, and trees live to be such a long, you know, they live such long lives, you know, longer than us even. But just that majesty, it's, it's you know, such, you know, it has such humanity, you know, to, if we want to personify it. Yes, but I just absolutely. Think, and, yeah. and that mm-hmm. phrase comes from Maya Angelou. Mm-hmm. Those are her words. Right. We worked with her estate mm-hmm. to get approval to use that as our um, postscript to our, you know, the 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 film. Mm-hmm. Um, it does reference a particular experience. And again, I don't want to go into too much detail for people who will see it, but it does reference a particular experience that Stacy has um, with his property mm-hmm. when great trees fall. Is is something specific in the film, but it comes from. Um, a Maya Angelou poem. Mhm. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And um, yeah, I really, I really like, you know, the way that um, you know, Stacy actually has an interview with his mother and, and and father, and they're talking about sort of, you know, their 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 homeland and 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 the, you know, the intrusion of of these these chemical companies that have polluted the environment and, and what and its effect like the details of its effect on his father's body and on his mother's mm-hmm. body and on kinfolk's bodies and mm-hmm. and just you know, just him playing that for us, you know, uh, we see sort of why he is committed to holding holding his ground, you know, literally yes. as long as he can. He made and, a promise mm-hmm. he made a promise to his parents and through, you know, very old technology, VHS tape, we mm-hmm. we are able to see his parents. It is a critical moment in the film. Mm-hmm. Um, for Stacy, it was a sacred moment because it's also the moment that his son sees his grandparents for the first time. So, mm-hmm. for in in terms of our launch of the film. Mm-hmm was the moment that Stacy first introduced his son to that footage. Mm, um, okay. So that that was mm. Andre, who is Stacy's son, who mm-hmm. is really um, Stacy's reason of being mm-hmm. and fighting, even beyond in a bigger way than his parents are, if you can believe that. Mm-hmm. Um, Andre saw his grandparents for the first time through the film, and that was something Stacy really insisted upon. Mm-hmm. And so we were honored. We were we were almost in shock. We we said, "You start. You're sure you don't want to watch the film in, in the comfort of your own home first? Mm-hmm. Are you sure you don't want to show your son the film? Just you, the two of you together." Mm-hmm. And 
he said, no, I want to be there with the audience, and I want my son to see um, his grandparents in that moment. Mm-hmm. And I was quite nervous to see how that would go. It was devastatingly beautiful, heartbreakingly powerful, mm-hmm. um, and one something I will never forget. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, I, I really, really like, um, you know, Stacy talking about, you know, sort of how, you know, his father, you know, he was a mechanic, he could fix things, and, and so could his son, and um, and he also liked school, so he was, you know, he liked education, but he also liked working with his hands, and how he looked just like his father, and he didn't even have to say it, we're like, whoa, he looks just like his father, and then Andre Wow, he looks just like his father. So then you got these three generations of black men, right? And boy, and and it's just like, it's it's just really beautiful. And then his father, you know his, you know his energy, uh, it just you could feel it in the film how how loving you know he was with his son and his family and the community. Absolutely. Mhm. Yeah, it's, and you don't see that enough in in films. You know, black men. You know, being compassionate and loving. So it's like we see that we see that a lot in this film, like all these beautiful men and and women, of course. And then and then we have these street names after these these um founders of the town. Oh yeah, that's my yes. that's my grand great grandfather's name. Yeah, blah blah blah. And it's like, oh, that is really lovely. Yeah, absolutely. It's um. I mean, really, this film is, it unfolds in, in so many different ways. It really is a treasure um, because we do get to see the power of black family. Mm-hmm. We do get to see um, the image of a tender, devoted, kind and gentle, but brilliant and strong and in many ways fierce black man. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think it, and Stacy, one of the things I've appreciated is how um, just watching him on the screen, he's like a counter narrative to many stereotypes of what it means to be black, what it means to be male, what it means to be Southern, because he presents a very, in some ways he lines up with some of these notions of masculinity, in other ways he's extremely kind of tender and there's there's a feminine energy about him at times that I think is really powerful for people to see and mm-hmm. important right. um, to get us out of these binaries of, of how we understand identity um, mm-hmm. and you know sometimes the stereotypes of, of a southerner um, being a southerner myself I've definitely contended with people who don't expect intelligence or brilliance um, mm-hmm. or innovation from southerners there's the stereotype that kind of haunts the south and so to see a black Southern man who is also ingenious, how he figures out how to survive um, through his own um, knowledge of um, electricity and wiring and creating his own sewer system and um, his own water purification system, mm-hmm. he understands how to survive in ways that many people would not. In, under, in the conditions that he's forced to live in as Sassel increasingly cuts him off from his basic needs, even trying to cut him off from access to his home and successfully doing that mm-hmm. in many times. Right, yeah. Yeah, that was really something, um, you know, when he talked about uh, one Thanksgiving when he couldn't get home and then 
another time when he said he called, you know, the police, you know, saying, you know, that within their contract, he had the right to, to the access the road to his home. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I don't know, I never saw him lose his form. Like, he just, um, you know, he was I mean, determined. He's definitely, you can tell that he goes through strong emotion. Mm-hmm. But he is someone who, um, no, you didn't see him go to a place of aggression. Mm-hmm. I mean, he is determined. He's clear. Mm-hmm. Um you can tell he experiences anger and rage, but the way he expresses it, um, he, he, he's he's almost faintly um, in the way that he comes across. He's, you know, he's not without anger, mm-hmm. um, but it's very wise and and again clear the way that he shows up. Yeah, 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 definitely, definitely, yeah. And um, I wanted to ask you if you could come back again to. Um, the uh, the South African part of the story and um, sort of how you all, um, I mean, of course, it was easy with, you know, the company being that it is what it is. But if you could talk about sort of um, are the communities connected through this company and, and what it's doing in Africa, South Africa, and what it's doing in Louisiana. And I don't know if it's doing the same thing anywhere else in the country, but it seems that you know these these southern spaces are are wide open to um politicians and policies that sort of undermine uh people's right to um uh, to homes and and to having a home homeland where they can grow old and healthy as opposed to you know all these pollutants that once they're in the environment, you know, once they, you know, get into the land and the water, you can't take them out of the land and the water and the air. Yeah, so I want to start with talking about the American South first mm-hmm. and then talk about the South African aspect of, of this story. Mm-hmm. So I have talked to, even in North Carolina where I live, which we've certainly had more than our fair share of environmental impacts, and in fact, the word the phrase environmental racism, to my knowledge, is actually um, coined in, here in North Carolina. So okay. we have our own story as well. Mm-hmm. But I've talked to lawmakers, even people you would consider activists, progressive African-American lawmakers, and something that they have told me that's real um, is that, yes, you know, this notion of the South being wide open to destructive, extractive, Industries and what we mean by extractive is industries that are pulling resources out of a place in a way that those resources are not renewable um, and then destructive, and that those industries um, have a um, sometimes negative, almost irreversible impact on um, soil, water, air, quality of life. And so one of the things that I've heard people say, and I've mentioned it a little bit before in our conversation, is that it's really tough to resist these mm-hmm. industries because of the economics. Right. Um, so you will have people from the very same family, um, black people, you know, included, who will say, my family will starve here. We will not be able to pay our bills. 
take care of our insurance and pay for our utilities if we don't get work. Mm-hmm. Um, we, you know, we have a, you know, a drug epidemic here because people are, you know, jobless, and so we need work. And so that pressure for work leaves one vulnerable to big industry. Um, and the more desperate you are for work, often then the less likely you, you know, an, a you know, government system, a community, or even a family will resist um, extractive and destructive industries because of the, the fear of, of being jobless and what that does to a community mm. or the experience of being jobless. Mm-hmm. And so when jobs come into a community, even if it's an extractive and destructive industry, mm-hmm. often people are like breathing a sigh of relief not in trying to not think about the fact that that sigh of relief, you know, that they're breathing is in toxic air. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a similar situation to what I see with people who are trying to migrate from you know, South America or from Mexico or Central America to the United States to flee one um, set of, you know, catastrophic realities looking to, you know, unite with family, reunite with family, or access some sort of livelihood. And in many cases, that livelihood involves working in um, farms where the exposure to chemicals um, and the lack of access to basic workers' rights means that they're living in an inhumane um, reality. But people don't live in inhumane realities because it feels like they have a choice. But many of them feel that they have no choice. And so I think part of this conversation mm. is how do we build in more options, more choices, more, um, you know, renewable, restorative, um, humane mm-hmm. um, industries in low-wealth communities, low-financially wealth communities. Many of these communities are wealthy in other ways, family, mm-hmm. culture, tradition, history. Um, and so the South Africa um, connection there, Sassel, yes, um, there is a plant in Secunda that they own and operate um, that is the single largest contributor of carbon dioxide of any, you know, plant on Earth. On Earth? On Earth. Wow. And so for uh, for Louisiana to roll out the red carpet mm-hmm. for that company to come into their state, that's a move of desperation. Oh. And so I think, I think mm-hmm. that... It is important for us to say this is unacceptable, this is inhumane, this cannot happen on my watch. But we also have to get into a mindset of what even inspired our, Hmm. you know, our communities, our state and local and federal governments to open the doors. Um, It's the economics. And so I think we need to have a conversation about that. That is that is important. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't know if you know the Bay Area at all, but, you know, we've got um, uh, not nearly the size of the um, uh, the chemical plants 
that we see um, in um, in in Mossville or in um, Secunda, but uh, in Martinez, you know, we have those um, sort of otherworldly Octavia Butler kind of kind of plants, and then <clears throat> and then you know, in Richmond, California, we know we've got the Chevron refineries, and um, and and. And we have some in some other places, but not nearly as large. Yes. And, and they have their spills, and they have their leaks, and yes. they have their things that they do. Mm-hmm. Our team came out for another festival in oh. Oakland called the Fist Up Festival. So oh, yeah. Daniel and Alex went to that festival. Okay. And they did send um, the rest of the team some photographs of, mm-hmm. of seeing at least one of those petrochemical mm-hmm. plants in um, you know, we all asked, "Where is? Where are you? Where are you?" <laughs> I'm thinking, "Is that Mossville? Where are you?" Like, mm-hmm. And they and they said, "No, that's that's here in California." Mm-hmm. Also, to continue your question, to respond to your question, um, you know, our team going to South Africa was really um, important, as you could see, to the story. Mm-hmm. Um, it was also really inspired by an amazing voice um, and, and and thought leader mm-hmm. around environmental racism. And her name is Monique Hardin. Um, Monique Hardin actually was the person who approached our director to say, after seeing Big Charity, I know what your next film is going to be. You have to tell the story. And she has remained an important advisor to the to the film, and we're excited to have her with us mm-hmm. um, when we have the Louisiana premiere mm-hmm. um, in October next month. Oh, nice. But Monique was the person who said, you all have to try to go to South Africa mm-hmm. and explore Sasso on its own ground. And mm-hmm. so um, the, the people, in, as you saw in the film, there are people who are speaking out loudly about mm-hmm. the conditions of workers and people living under the shadow of the Sasso plant um, in South Africa. And we did have the film to show at the Durban International Film Festival, Durban oh, in, in nice. South Africa. Uh-huh. And there will be another um, tour of a film festival that's also based on solar-operated um Screen. So we love that mm. there's a combination of film, but also um, environmental innovations. Mm-hmm. And Daniel, our Mossville you know, native, who um, yes. is a producer, went with um, our director to South Africa. It was her, his first time on the African continent, mm-hmm. and it was very moving for him mm-hmm. and very transformative for him to hear out of the mouth of South Africans, his own story and the story of his family right. and the story of his community members mm-hmm. reflected back to him. And he said it was like looking in a mirror and um, I think it actually changed his life and I think it helped people in those communities in South Africa to also feel less alone and more united um, with people who have been impacted by um, fence line communities and petrochemical plants. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because I remember when um, the uh, apartheid government was was looking to, um, to you know to start initiating its policies full swing, 
um, it looked to um, America and how, you know, it, you know, treated, you know, its people of African descent here, you know, African Americans to be, you know, to sort of like tailor its, you know, uh, policies, you know, around, around ours. And, and so, um, you know, I've had, I have a lot of friends that I've sort of looked at, um, you know, so looking at Oakland, California, and looking at Johannesburg, you know, as sort of like sister cities, you know, insofar as, um, you know, the way black people are treated, you know, uh, around economic yeah. justice, around environmental justice. And so, you know, that there is this link um, with this company. And, you know, and there are probably a lot of other links, but I'm really happy that, you know, Ms. Harden, you know, um, you know, shared this story, you know, with the director um, because it's like, wow. And, you know, and these, these stories, there are a lot of stories, and I'm glad that, you know, you're the story doula. So, you know, we're going to be we're gonna be hearing more of these stories. And I just wanted to mention that actually um, I know uh, Monique Harden, um, attorney and co-director of Advocates for Environmental Human Rights, because I met her, um, Bridge the Gulf, because, you know, I'm, I'm a New Orleans native, and so for the yeah. 10th anniversary of Katrina, I was there, and um, and they had all these, you know, sort of town hall kind of things and programs and, you know, um, uh, libations, and, and so, yeah, yeah, so her organization was, you know, convened some things, and so I think I saw her at something, but I, I know her name. Wow. Oh, my goodness. You have so many connections to this work. It's remarkable. Yeah, well, it's, it's my people. <laughs> Clearly. I'm so honored to have someone like you to, to interview me about this because you do have personal connections. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I want to ask you, you're going to be um, having uh, a really wonderful um, conversation with the community before the film. And I wanted to get the details yeah. about that because um, I'm looking in my materials and I can't find the location. And the, I think it's 1 o'clock, right? It is. It's at 1 o'clock. Uh, I will say that um, we are – I'm still getting clear on the location in my mind because I'm not as familiar with San Francisco, but I'm hoping that that information can be found on the Green Film Festival website. But mm -hmm. also – the partner on that workshop and what we're going to be talking about is accountability in filmmaking mm, you know okay. how do we work in ways just like an industry like petrochemical industries can be extractive mm -hmm. extracting out you know chemicals from the earth um, or, or elements from the earth we as filmmakers can be extractive um, mm. we can be destructive we can go into a community and objectify people and and kind of take their stories and marginalize people from that. There's a way to do that, and then there's a way not to do that. Um, and so we're talking about how to be more accountable in our process so that we are more humane, more inclusive, less marginalizing. And so we're having some real, real focused conversations about how to do that and showing some models, and I'm really proud that this is a part of an initiative from an organization called Working Films, mm -hmm. a powerful organization um, that works nationally. And this is an initiative called Story Shift. Mm. You know, how do we shift this, these narratives? Um, I'm really also proud that they're going to be showing a part of 
uh, conversation with Alex Lustrom and myself as we explore um, really what 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 we think about regularly in terms of ethical practice and praxis, um, best practices, um, humility, um, a larger vision for how we want our work to impact the world. How do we want to include um, people in a way that they normally wouldn't be um, and, and really try to open up the filmmaking world in a way that is more just and equitable and kind and compassionate and thoughtful. Um, and so these are questions that we're grappling with every day. And so we, that session, it's at one, um, and again, I'm sorry, I can't tell you the location, but I believe that it's on the oh, website. Yeah, um, I, I found it. I, I think I found okay. it. Um, yeah, it's, uh, okay. you mentioned um, Impact Film Forum, Accountable, Accountable Filmmaking Considering Mossville. It's at Manny's, which um, I think is right across the street from... Yes, um, and I know there's some questions going on in San Francisco around Manny, so that's why I'm not sure. You know, I'm I'm looking forward to hearing if that's where we'll be actually. Oh really? So we'll see. Oh okay. Um, yeah, I mean, my understanding is that we are scheduled to be there. Okay. And then I'm also would encourage anyone listening to also double check. Um, okay. So yeah, I, we, that's you know that's my understanding as of today, and I think that it's important for any you know anytime you go to a film festival to just double check the website and the mm -hmm. app to make sure um, that you will be in the right place at the right time. Festivals <laughs> can be wild, as you know. You can, you're trying to make the different film times, get a line at the right time. And it's exciting and exhilarating, but it can also be a little mind-boggling because mm -hmm. you're trying to, I know for me, I always feel like I need to clone myself and be in more than one place at, at once. Mm. Yeah, yeah. There's so many film festivals happening, like they're overlapping each other, like um, the San Francisco Green Film Festival starts tonight and it continues through this weekend and the Oakland International Film Festival is entering its second week um, and it concludes this coming weekend and um, an Oakland International Film Festival uh, also highlights you know films by you know African and African diaspora filmmakers and others so wow. and, the, and then the Mill Valley Film Festival it comes in I think like a week or two later <laughs> so it's My like goodness. ah yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it's just really yeah. really lovely you know lovely you know being able to um you know be able to experience all these stories and yeah so Manny's if it continues to be you know definitely I agree people should check but uh, Manny's is uh, 3092 16th Street in San Francisco like I said it's I think it's right across the street from um, the Roxy where the film is screening um at it's a screening at uh, 3:30. So, um, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. should be really, really nice. Yeah, wow, wow. And when we spoke last week, um, you mentioned that um, all those museums that you're responsible for, um, they had had um, damage from, water damage from the hurricanes. So, um, Oh, no, let me be clear. Oh. We're, um, we were... We were preparing um, oh. for potential damage, and with some of them had been impacted. So North Carolina, as you know, is a huge state, and yeah. so you know those a hurricane. It's very rare that it 
it can, but it's very rare that it would impact our mountains mm -hmm. or our Piedmont. So we were most concerned about our coastal sites and some of our more, you know, eastern sites. Mm -hmm. And some of them had power outage or trees down. Um, there was one site that had some flooding. Um, and so each site, because it's in a different part of the state, has different needs. Some of them had needs, some of them didn't. Some of them had, you know, power out for days when we had to get a generator involved. So every site is different. But, yes, I was in hurricane um, preparation, response, and recovery mode. Um, mm -hmm. And still am sort of in recovery mode. They're, they are in good condition. Mm -hmm. um, the next part of our recovery process, even if a site is in good condition, is the paperwork that, that, in, that is involved whenever there's a FEMA um, emergency declared. Mm -hmm. And so we are also still wrapping up we're almost wrapped up from Hurricane Matthew. Mm -hmm. We're still in the midst of paperwork and recovery at some sites from Hurricanes Florence and Michael. And so this will be, in my role as a museum professional, Dorian is the fourth hurricane that I've had to mm -hmm. have any sort of um, response to. Mm -hmm. Wow. Yeah. And, and just a matter, and just a matter of, of a few, you know, two, two and a half years. Right. Wow. Yeah. Well, this is hurricane season, and we're having this it is. Un, unreasonably hot weather here in the Bay Area. Um, like we're in the 90 degrees. Um, wow. It looks and, like it's cooling off a little bit later this weekend. Mm, yeah. We hope so, um, because you know we. Yes, get, I was just kind of looking at the uh, weather preparing mm -hmm. system. Get my clothes packed for the journey, <laughs> and it looks like it's going to be kind of um, mild during the day and cool in the evening. So, mm -hmm. yeah, looking forward to that. Because you know we have fires here. Um, wow. And this is this is that season, you know, September, October. Right. Yeah. So, could you give the website for the film, and uh, and then I wanted to know also if you have a website for the people who want to find out, sort of. You know, sort of what you're up to since you're up to a whole lot. <laughs> yes. So um, I do not have a personal website, um, but I can be found on Instagram. Um, Michelle is rising. Um, it's M-I-C-H-E-L-L-E-I-S-R-I-Z-I-N. Okay. Michelle is rising. Mm -hmm. And the Mossville website is mossvilleproject.com. And um, if people want to learn more about our state historic sites in North Carolina, people can certainly um, look up North Carolina state historic sites. Okay. And um, we are also, um, in terms of Mossville, we do have a social media presence. Mm -hmm. So I would love for people to follow um, and get involved with Mossville Film on Instagram and Facebook. Mm -hmm. um, you can learn a lot more about the project. Um, online, Mossville Project, and Mossville Film on Instagram and Facebook. Okay, cool. All righty, awesome, awesome. Well, safe travels. I look forward to meeting you um, when you touch down you this well. weekend. Um, yeah, and once again, congratulations on this beautifully rendered work. Um, it's, it's such a great tool, um, you know, sort of showing, you know, African-American history you know, as as 
you know, as founders of, of towns, right, townships, and, um, and you know, we definitely belong. And, in, you know, sort of during the year of the 400th, uh, you know, anniversary of, of the first landing, right, and, and the, Afri- the 400-year African-American History Commission, um, it's just a perfect um, work to have, you know, perfect document among other documents, I hope, that are being made, you know, to sort of like, you know, sort of speak, you know, for our people, you know, tell the stories of us, you know, that are not being told, even if the landscape doesn't, you know, no longer supports the presence, you know, we have this document, and so that, you know, can hold the legacy. Absolutely. I think it's critical for us to continue to remember the lands that have held our people mm-hmm. and to never let that be forgotten. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So thank you so much for your work. And I'm really looking forward to seeing the film about Charity Hospital. <laughs> oh, wonderful. Well, it is available, I think, on Amazon Prime. You, oh. You could stream it. Super. I'm, I, yeah, great. I'm going to stream I would love to hear. I would love to hear your feedback so that I can share it um, with my colleagues and mm-hmm. Will I see you at the Green Festival? Yes, you will. Definitely want to meet you. Oh, I look forward. Well, we should get a picture together. Okay, we can put it on your Instagram, right? <laughs> I would love that. And, and I'll put it on the Mossville one as well. Okay. Oh, that'd be super. All righty. Excellent. Great, great. Well, thank you so much for this wonderful conversation. And I look forward to um, having other conversations, um, you know, in the future. I look forward to it, too, and again, it's so special to me that um, that you were born in charity, and um, I look forward to sharing that with my team and, mm-hmm. and seeing you in San Francisco. Right, yeah, and one more thing, I was just thinking about, you know, sort of what happened to, um, you know, to the residents, um, you know, um, of Mossville and in Louisiana, and, um, and, and I have a, a similar but different displacement story in my family um, uh, from Logtown, uh, Mississippi, one of 13 towns that NASA, the test site, um, took um, when they wanted to um, to be able to uh, to develop a, uh, a test site for um, for the space um, uh, space exploration, and so. Um, so they took they took all of the land, thirteen towns, and one person, he would he didn't want to leave in one of these towns, and um, and and so he was the only house left. I think he kind of I think he died, um, and and yeah, and so there weren't just people of African descent, but these were, you know, towns that that they did you know the government did eminent domain, and so I was just thinking how. And my mother said they got like this little check that didn't buy anything, um, you know, definitely mm. couldn't buy a house, and and no one knows like Logtown doesn't exist anymore, and so the only people that have can document Logtown uh, are those people that are old enough and they're they're like dying off to have it on their birth certificates that they were born in Logtown, and and wow. during um, the storms of Hurricane Katrina in Mississippi, you know, they actually got. The hurricane, um, the test site. Actually, um, NASA had some of the um, antiquities of some of the inhabitants of of Purlington, you know, which is where some of the people, my people, relocated. 
um, after they couldn't live in Logtown. So they those things didn't go weren't flooded. So the pictures and other things that was still um, uh, with NASA for their Black History Month event uh, didn't go underwater because that place is a little higher, has a higher elevation. Wow. But I was just thinking about how, I don't know, it seems like back then, um, I guess because they were going to be, you know, exploding things, they didn't, like, surround the people with, you know, this this horrible, horrific kind of industrial um uh, development that people had to leave whereas now it seems like you know people are surrounded by industrial um, uh, uh, I guess um, industrial um, development that kills them so people can't leave I mean like they they're dying in place as opposed to leaving yeah, yeah it's like sort of like yeah. a, a flip a different kind of way of doing things you know? Well, and it's and both are the, the thing about this this extractive industry, mm-hmm. um, the story of it is that both are happening. Is uh. that people are also being displaced and losing their lives. Oh, it's happening. Right. It's, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so again, we have to be outraged. Mm-hmm. You know, it's important for us to. Um, there's some. Sean King's one of my. Um, most inspirational people that I follow on, on social media who makes it his business to to put a spotlight on injustice. Mm. And one of the things that um, I read in one of his captions in the past few months was, don't you look away, don't you dare look away, don't dare look away. Mm-hmm. And that's how I feel about this story, is that we have to look mm-hmm. because it is us. We are only extensions of each other. Right. I'm so grateful for all the producers and and um, and Alex and his eye because he is so tender in his um, in his camera work mm-hmm. and his gentleness. And we are so we, we, we're not worthy to have this kind of access to someone's home and life. And body in the way that Stacy says, "Come and look at me. Mm-hmm. Come and look with me. Come and be with me." Um, there's nothing we could ever do as an audience to deserve that, and yet He gives that gift to us. Mm-hmm. And so, I, I, the least that the least that we can do is to not look away. Yeah. And the least that we can do is to say, "Now that I've seen, um, I must change." Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, yeah. Well, hopefully, you know, you'll be showing these films to, you know, politicians, you know, policymakers, you know, folks yeah. that can sign the contract we, that lets yes, these. We are, we are definitely looking through, um, you know, the telescope to the future to think about what's next. And mm-hmm. so, again, I, as I shared earlier in our interview, um, there is a woman who will be bringing on and we'll be announcing her soon as mm-hmm. our impact producer right. and part of her work is to help us dream about how do we um, get this powerful story in the hands of decision makers mm-hmm. as well as everyday people who can make everyday change mm-hmm. um, as well as people who have lived under these conditions to let them know they're not alone and they too can stand up with us um, as well as educators so there are many gr- families um I say families, but, you know, uh, 
potential allies mm-hmm. um, who we want to work with, but definitely included in that number um, are decision makers um, and policy makers. Right. Yeah, that's excellent. Excellent. Cool. <laughs> wow. Well, once again, it's been really wonderful speaking with you, and uh, yeah, um, yeah, it's been really a great conversation, and you know, about a, a wonderful work and about a wonderful community that now we know about. You know. Absolutely. Mhm. Yeah. Well, that was a really wonderful extended conversation with the executive producer of the film Mossville, When Great Trees Fall. And again, um, there's a really wonderful forum. It's a free forum uh, at Manny's in San Francisco. Uh, It's 90 minutes, starts at 1, and then the film uh, is right afterwards across the street at the Roxy. And you can get all this information at Green Films. Is it Green Films? Oh, let me make sure I give it to you right. Greenfilmfestival.org. <laughs> Again, greenfilmfestival.org. And there are so many fabulous films. Oh, my goodness. Ah, gosh. Um, And, and there's so many of them at the same time. Because I was looking at Mossville, When Great Trees Fall, and... Um, that's uh that's tomorrow the twenty eighth and um and then uh golden fish and African fish that's also tomorrow that's at one uh that's at the um and that's the west coast premiere and uh that looks at uh Casamance in uh the south of Senegal and it's one of the last areas of traditional fishing in west africa and that's um that looks like a wonderful film, and that's going to be um, at the Little Roxy, uh, not far from the Big Roxy, and um, it might be next door, actually. And then um, I noticed another film uh, with a wonderful image of a powerful black woman, uh, Silent Forest, um, that's directed by Mariah Wilson. Um, uh, Golden Fish, African Fish, is directed by um, Musa Dopp and Thomas Grand. And Silent Forest, that's at 3.15, um, and that's um, shot in uh, Cameroon and Congo, and that's 90 minutes, and it is at the Little Roxy as well. And then I saw another one tonight, um, Honor the Past to Shape the Future, Ohlone Women Reclaim Their Homelands. That's going to be awesome, and that has a, a San Francisco Bay Area filmmaker, and that's at the Roxy tonight at 6 p.m., and you're going to be able to meet trailblazing Ohlone women leaders who are creating pathways to Ohlone, for Ohlone people to reclaim their ancestral lands, spirituality, and culture. And how do we bridge bridges? How do we build bridges for deeper understanding and healing as we live on stolen homelands of Ohlone people? And so they're going to be special guests um, tonight uh, that have been invited. So that should be really awesome. And um, again, that's uh, 6 p.m. tonight. And uh, and then I saw another film about these rhinos that look really awesome. Oh, here it is, uh, Gifaru, and that is to Sunday at 8:30, um, and that's a, a San Francisco premiere, and that's at the Little Roxy. And uh, these are um, uh, rhinoceros that are the northern white rhino. Is um, this particular one? Uh, 
his name is Sudan and in Kenya and he is the last one and and so we we uh we meet these caretakers um of these rhinoceros and um that are you know threatened with extinction and so that looked really wonderful however it kind of like conflicts with the closing night film uh featuring um the uh daughter of Jacques Cousteau, and I'm like, oh, my gosh, what choices. So anyway, um, greenfilmfest.org. So I'm going to play a song by Stella Heath, uh, uh, Banjango Collective, because tonight she has a uh, CD release party, and we talk to her later on in the in the program, which hopefully we'll get to. Whether or not you can listen to the entire show um, in the archives for Wednesday, September 25th going to try to play it but we'll see how far we get but i wanted to let you know let you know that she has a um a cd release party tonight um at uh at the red uh red poppy art house in 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 uh in san francisco and i wanted to um give you a little teaser and play a little bit um play a little play a song from um from her her cd so i'm going to play and i don't speak french and uh and and the music is sort of coming from uh, Louisiana and so we're kind of like Louisiana on the mind right at the moment <laughs> which is perfectly fine so i'm going to play um uh, i'm going to play the uh the first one and if you speak french then you will understand what she's talking about <laughs> Je suis 
was wonderful. That was Stella Heath, uh, Banjango Collective. And again, they have a show tonight at the Red um, Poppy Art House. And uh, yeah, it's going to be nice. I think it's 7 to 10 or something like that. Um, yeah, you can visit their website and uh, or you can, um, I think I uh, I linked to it. Yeah, I did. Um, and uh, let's see, what is the address since I'm here on the website? Um, <laughs> uh, let's see. Location, and and it is um uh, it is bar accessible. So, um, but the only thing is um I don't think you can do the movie <laughs> that I mentioned about the Ohlone women, and and the concert. I don't think I think you'll have to make a choice. Uh, so Red Red Poppy Art House is twenty six ninety eight Folsom Street at twenty third Street in San Francisco, and uh, can't go wrong. And and don't forget uh, the uh, Oakland International Film Festival continues, and they're having, I believe, um, sort of a women's art, women's film kind of featuring uh, features this particular day. And uh, you can visit um, uh, Oakland International Film Festival, I think dot org to find out all the information about um, about the uh, this this. Um, this wonderful festival that celebrates, gosh, um, the artistry of so many wonderful, wonderful um, directors and quite a few of them, just as in the um, San Francisco um, Green Film Festival, are Bay Area natives. So it's really great. Like we've got all this talent in our own community and it's being highlighted in such a wonderful way um, throughout the Bay Area. So, again, um, here is the uh, rebroadcast from September 25th. And if we don't get through all of it, you can go to um, 
the uh, the website and listen to the whole show because you don't want to miss any of it because it was so phenomenal. So we begin with with Andre Site uh, Two, whose um, work a Rio is opening tonight for previews at Brava Theater Center, and that's followed by again Leslie. Um, uh, Curier and Damian Brown talking about Marin Shakespeare Company's production of A Midsummer Night's Dream um, with all people of color cast, which is unheard of so far. But you know, perhaps we got a trend going here. And uh, there are a lot of performances and a Shakespeare dinner. So go visit the website for information about all of that because the the uh, show has to close at 4 p.m. on on Sunday, but you don't want to miss in, miss it. It was really phenomenal. I saw it last week. And again, Stella Heath talks about the Billy Holiday Project. That's how we close the show. So enjoy. Good morning and welcome to Wanda's Picks, a black arts and cultural program of the African Sisters Media Network. And that was Zion Trinity singing opening prayer for the African deity, Eshu Legba. A deity that lets us know that we always have choices. We are never victims, so we should definitely take a minute, pause, and exercise our options and not think that what's directly in front of us is the only path available. So we are so excited to have um, in the studio... Um, I think this is, uh, I'm not sure if it's Idris, um, Anifa Moshe Cooper, or Andrew Saito, um, the playwright for Rio, El Rio. Um, so who's in the studio? <laughs> is Andrew here? Oh, hey, Andrew, I know we don't have a long time. Congratulations on the opening of your play, El Rio. This Friday, September 27th, and going all the way through Sunday, October 20th, at Brava Theater Center. Um, so it's a it's a collaboration, right, um, with um, the uh, the smaller theater company um, that uh, Idris is one of the founders of. Correct. The Black the Black Artists Contemporary Cultural Experience the ACCE. Right, right, yeah, and and you are no stranger to the airwaves. Uh, we're we're so happy to have you on, even even briefly, you know, because you're getting ready to take a flight. Thank Where you. Are you I going? appreciate. I'm flying back to New York. Oh, you're in New York now. Okay. Which, which, is, which is where I live now. I I live there these days. 
Oh, okay, yeah, because you used to live here. Oh, so you got I your did, play all indeed. ready to go, and now you're gone. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So you are an international playwright who's focus focus you focus on indigenous and cross-racial stories, hybridity, and struggles against colonialism, and its long-lingering footprints. You've worked with Peru's legendary theater collective, uh, Grupo Cultural. Um, how do you pronounce that? Okay, Yuyachikani. Yeah, and Cuba's Conjunto Cultural. And finish that one for me too. So it's Conjunto Cultural Corimacao, which is a okay. uh, um, uh, arts and a multidisciplinary arts center created in Cuba in the early '90s during the special period um, when there was very little. Uh, people were kind of starving, and yet the government felt it was important to still supports art, so they created this People's Art Center very close to the Bay of Pigs. Okay, yeah, yeah. And and then keep on going, because I don't know how to pronounce um, Asociación and then the rest okay, of Okay, Asociación Chaco Sun is uh, indigenous, it's a Mayan theater ensemble in Guatemala, and my collaborator and dear friend, Joaquin Valdez, and I have been collaborating with them for a few years, about two years now, two and a half years, and um, mm-hmm. We had a show earlier this year at La Peña Cultural Center and then at El Teatro Campesino called Men of Rabinal, and that was about the um, the Rabinal Achi, the this 500-plus year or 600-plus year old Mayan dance drama, which is the only known uh, pre-Hispanic play um, mm. that from before the conquest to still be performed in Mesoamerica. Nice. That sounds awesome. I'm so sorry I missed that. Wow. I need to well, follow We'll be bringing it back. We'll be, we'll, we'll be bringing oh. it back. So. Oh, super, that. super. Okay. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. And so, you know, the kind of work that you do is just so, you know, phenomenal. Um, I remember when we spoke last, I think um, you had a play at um, as a part of the uh, Bay Area Playwrights Festival. And, um, oh, yes, correct. Yes. And that was, yeah. And, and that was, you know, that was a really um, a story that we don't hear about a lot. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about about this particular work. Um, you know, you own you uh, you hold a, B, a MFA from the Iowa Playwrights Workshop, and Idris uh, Anifa Woshe Cooper does too, and, and she taught there. <laughs> yes, and and you were a Fulbright. No, go ahead. Fulbright scholar, correct? Yeah. No, no, you were going to say something about Idris. Oh, I, I don't, I don't uh, remember. She's okay. wonderful. Yeah, and yeah, right. Yeah, and uh, you were um, a Fulbright scholar in Papua New Guinea, which sounds really Correct. fascinating. And did a play come out of that? <laughs> uh, a screenplay came out of that. It has yet to be made, but I still have hopes Ooh. and faith that it will, that it will end up end up uh, bec- end up becoming uh, something for audiences. Yeah, yeah, but um, I want to let you talk a little bit about about this play because um, the time is ticking away, and and then we can come back to um, some of the things you 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 care about that you're really passionate about. Um, <laughs> so Great. tell us about El Rio. So El Rio is the very first play I ever wrote back in um, 2002, mm-hmm. actually, and. It, um, it, I wrote it as my undergraduate thesis at, for the Ethnic Studies Department at UC Berkeley. That's where I majored. That's what I majored in. And it, the play 
takes place along the Texas-Mexico border, and it follows um, two women, a black Seminole woman named Francisca. She's a veteran of, of the Iraq War, and then she basically saves, uh, saves a just-arrived refugee from Guatemala, a Mayan woman named Rosario, and she's there to be raped by... Is that how the place starts? So I'm not really spoiling it. She's about to be raped by a border vigilante, so Francisca saves her, saves her life, and then the two of them are on the run from the law, and the play basically mm. follows the Rio Grande. Um, you know, the plot is sort of linked to the course of the river, and they are being pursued by Reynaldo, who is a... Um, somewhat professionally stagnated border patrol agent who's looking for his chance to rise in the ranks and find glory and he views them he's hoping to catch them as a um, as a way to do that hmm. wow wow but this is your first play how many plays have you written <laughs> oh, I've lost count it's 20 something 20 something but this is the yeah. first play I ever wrote and it is very much there. There's the imprint of of three professors um, who who I was staying with at that time. The first, Shedi Moraga, who was my first um, first playwriting mm. mentor. She and wow. I took her Chicana Chicana Latina Theater Workshop at, at Berkeley uh, two years in a row, mm-hmm. and then I studied with her in her playwriting classes at Stanford. And so she, it's a play, and I became a playwright because of her. And mm. um, and then also she dealt a lot with she had us look a lot at issues of of borders and so the border I I don't even quite know how it became the Texas Mexico border but um, but that just became the right place and mm-hmm. and then I was also taking a class with Taya Miles called Africans in Indian Country which is a which was a seminar that focused on Black Native shared history relations, etc. Um, throughout the U.S. U.S. history over the past few centuries, and so Taya is a Black woman, and her husband is Native American, and so she has her her scholarship. As far as I understand, her scholarship before meeting him was focused on Black women's history and literature, and then she met him and fell, she met fell in love with this Native American man and realized that that the two of them uniting, if you will, wasn't a totally new or unique phenomenon in American history or U.S. history, better mm-hmm. put, um, and that the the um, how to put it the um, the weaving together of Black and Native narratives in this country is pretty old. It's probably as old as the history of Black people, the presence of Black people in this country. Or in this continent, better put, and so, um, so that's how the, this one main character, Francisca, this black Seminole woman, came about was because I was, I was um, taking Taya's class, and as a mixed race, hybrid, culturally hybrid person myself, while I am neither in my own DNA neither black nor Native American, I still was very drawn to um, to Taya's field of study. And mm-hmm. so she was. A, she and Sherry were my closest mentors on the project. And then the other character, Rosario Chen, who's a Maya Achi woman from the village of Rio Negro in the middle of Guatemala. Um, Rio Negro is the site um, of a massacre in, I think, 1982. 
there was a village that did not want to um, – they were ordered to be relocated so that the government with World Bank funding could build a hydroelectric dam. But it's, that when that dam was built, it was going to flood their village. So the government told them to move. They didn't. They refused to move. There were threats. The men left thinking that the, everyone else would be safe, that they would be the targets. But then these soldiers and paramilitaries arrived and um, massacred everyone who was left, which were women, senior citizens, or elders, and children, very few survivors. So Rosario is a survivor of that massacre. And I learned about that massacre in a class with a third professor at Berkeley, Claudia Carr, who her class was um, called Indigenous Communities and International Development. And we looked at how giant conglomerations and institutions like the World Bank and the IMF had great sway over indigenous cultures all over the planet. And um, this case of Rio Negro in Guatemala was one case that he also looked at Alaska, West Papua, I think Hawaii, and, and mm-hmm. um, community in Amazon. And so that, that, that was the stew in which I was in my very early 20s, um, you know, mm-hmm. that's the stew I was in at, at, at Cal, and um, it all sort of coalesced into this play, and, and now 17 years later, um, Idris is doing a marvelous job directing it, and, mm-hmm. and um, she, she first read the play when she was a panelist on the Global Age Project at Aurora Theater in 2012. When I was in Papua New Guinea, I sent, I did it. I was in Papua New Guinea, so I revisit this play every few years, and or have been, mm-hmm. and um, you know, lie dormant for a few years, and I'll come back to it. And so in 2012, I don't know what inspired me, but I was in Papua New Guinea, and I completely rewrote the play from basically mm. the ground up. And while the plot and characters are the same. And some of the scenes are kind of, um, you know, are similar to what they were originally. Um, mm-hmm. I cut the cast from eight to, to four actors. And that's the other main characters. I mentioned the two women and Reynaldo, the Border Patrol agents. The play is united by, by El Rio, who gives the play its title. And that mm-hmm. character, played by, by Carla Pantoja, is the Rio Grande as a person, right? Or as a person embodying the river or the border. Mm. And so mm. she not only gives life and voice to the land, but she also portrays all the other characters in the play, and there are a lot of minor characters. And so they are basically, um, she, she, she's literally the border, and she's also, she also plays the people who live on the border, right, on both sides, mm. Mexico and Texas. And... Mm-hmm. And she's a shapeshifter. She's a trickster. She's a narrator, and and in her nar- her narration takes the form of gorilos. And gorilos are a traditional northern Mexican song form, which during the time of the Mexican Revolution were used as a form of journalism before TV or radio. And so these singer songwriters would sing songs. They would compose and then sing songs about Pancho Villa and other. Like the, the events of the day, and they would go around around the villages in northern Mexico, um, to telling to keep people up to date. So she she that and that was always my um, vision back in 20, 2002 was to have 
the play, have three of those in the play, but at the time I felt incapable of writing them. And so in a way that this play, the original version of this play was beyond my artistic skills at the moment. So I, mm-hmm. in a way I've had to mature into a playwright capable of actually executing my original vision. Wow. How fun, right? You know, like just sort of coming back to a work that in its genesis is is perfect, but then you have to live some more and get some more skills, and then you revisit it and you birth this this more mature, um, you know, entity. That's really great. And uh, and you are going to be coming back because I noticed that you and Idris are going to have um, a conversation in October when you return. Yes. Um, so you won't be here for opening night this weekend, but you'll be back. Um, let's see, uh, Friday, October 18th, through uh, Saturday, October 19th, and then Sunday. Um, Correct. Right. Super. Correct. And which which day is the panel? Um, I mean, the panel, but the discussion with Idris. Is it going to be every evening or in the afternoon on the 20th or just one of those? I, I suspect it's on Saturday, the, um, I mean, I, pardon the 19th. Me, I, I suspect it'll be on Friday, on Friday the 18th, I suspect so. Okay. All right. Cool. Super, super. Um, do you have to dash? <laughs> we can have it. We can take a few more minutes. Okay. Super. I just wanted to um, to talk a little bit more about um, you know the uh, you know your your own hybridity you know sort of being um, from multiple cultures and and also wanted to just say uh, Cherie uh, Moraga of the um, this bridge called my back uh, fame. Exactly. I was like, yes, oh my yes, god, yes. like for real, for real, like you had all these powerful women professors, like you know when you're just like a newbie <laughs> in in higher yeah, education. Yeah, really, like, really, really a blessing. It was really a blessing. Yeah, yeah, and and hopefully you know they'll be able to come see the rebirth of this work, right? Um, I, I hope they're I around. Cherie, I emailed Cherie. Claudia will probably come see it. She saw me in the Um mm-hmm. and then Taya has lived long within Michigan, but I'll send her. I'll send her the video. Yeah, yeah, because this is such a tribute to to their ah, scholarship. Awesome. You know, you know, coming through you. <laughs> like, wow, I mean, to have a student, like, really? <laughs> Andrew, really? Yeah. Well, thank you. you know, thank this you. is like the biggest tribute that anyone could give, um, you know, a, a teacher to be able to produce work that mm-hmm. demonstrates your understanding of, you know, the philosophy and intentions of, of the scholar. Mm, well, thank you for saying that. That, that means a lot. Yeah, yeah. So talk about yourself a little bit more. I mean, you're just like the work that comes through you is like, oh my gosh. Thank you. Well, so I am the uh, grandchild of. No, no, no. Pardon me. I am. I am the I'm the grandchild of survivors of the Japanese American internment. Specifically, my father's parents met in Manzanar when they were incarcerated during mm-hmm. World War II. And I am the great-grandchild of immigrants from Japan, Austria, and I believe the great-great-grandchild of immigrants from Ireland. Um, And my mother, may she rest in peace, was the oldest of seven children, uh, grew up in Ambridge, Pennsylvania, a little coal town 
coal and steel, or steel town, pardon me, steel town outside of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And um, when she was 13, her family all moved to California because her father mm-hmm. couldn't stand working in the steel mills in Pennsylvania anymore. And, um, and my grandfather, Joseph Carlton, was rather notoriously racist. And he, um, he, oh, so he was rather notoriously racist. To give you an example, he prohibited his youngest daughter from watching the Cosby show. Mind you, this was in the 80s before, before all, everything that's come out recently. So, you know, it was a very innocent program. And, mm-hmm. but he, he would not allow her to watch the Cosby show. So, anyway, so he had seven children. Six of the mm-hmm. seven of his seven children married people of color of all different races. So really? <laughs> me, and all, me and all of my cousins are mixed race, and I am half Japanese, half white. Two of my cousins are half black, half white, and then five of my cousins are half Mexican and half white. Um, so, <laughs> so you know, people say write what you know. And um, Marcus Garley, who was my one of my teachers, yeah. he was my teacher before, and is an amazing writer and phenomenal teacher. Mm-hmm. He writes, as he puts it, he writes about black communities in transition, and he is writing what he knows. He, you know, his father, he grew up in West Oakland. His father, so he's not sorry, he's a preacher. Um, you know, he was, you know, grew up very much in. Uh, in that black community, in the black church, and and but yet, what when I grew up, it was always in an extremely mixed race, and even international, in a way, international community. This family, right, that had you know people from all over, and and so um, so I was always very aware, of course, my Japanese heritage, but also you know. Um, that I had these European ancestors, and then I was, you know, my first babysitter was my aunt from Mexico, you know, born in Mexico, <laughs> who was an immigrant, and um, and then my my African American uncle in Georgia from Tipton in southern Georgia. He uh, he's basically my second father. We are extremely close, and he has this large. He also has a lot of siblings, and um, so when when I go down to with him to Southern Georgia, I am entirely embraced by this very, you know, this very large Southern Black family, and so, um, and so I've, I've almost never been in a monoracial environment myself, right? Mm-hmm. And so my experience as an Asian American man, as a Japanese American man, has pretty much always been, also first of all that I'm mixed race, but also has been in a larger multiracial, multicultural fabric, uh, which is why I was drawn to ethnic studies, and I didn't major in Asian American studies, I majored in ethnic studies, so looking at all of the diversity in the United States. Um, and so and so I think that's why I'm drawn to stories of interracial um, encounters, if you will, and hybridity, because that's, that's what's in my DNA, and so that's why El Rio has, uh, has black uh, Chicano or Latinx and um, and indigenous characters. They're also white characters, but the, all the white characters are played by Carla Pantoja, who's a Chicana actress. 
or Whisperfish, which which we talked about last time, which is about Japanese characters, but they're in Peru, and so they're Japanese Peruvian. And there, there's also this prominent Afro-Peruvian character and an Aymara, indigenous Peruvian character. And so it's I I love those spaces where, um, which in a way could, well, no, that one it, they can only happen in the United States, but 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 almost most potently and most frequently these spaces exist in the United States. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Wow. Wow. This is so interesting. Wow. And you know, only only through art can you you know show that movement so well, right? I mm. mean, yeah. I mean, you know, as an artist, you can you can plot it out. You know, in in these yes. various you know plays, and then you can circle back, <laughs> and and then continue yeah. again, and yeah, yeah. Wow. It's it's it goes to show you how how much of the ore that one needs to mine these this, these riches you already oh, own sure. you're already a part of you, huh? Mhm. Absolutely, absolutely. Yes. So yeah, so I'm yeah. I'm I'm bubbling up some new plays inside me and one of them is going to be uh me, a fictionalized version of me and my cousin Jimmy. Um mm-hmm. and uh my who's half black and my cousin half half black, half white and my cousin David who's half Mexican and half white, and it'll be the three of us through a <laughs> seance trying to communicate with our racist dead grandfathers. Oh, wow! So wow. we'll see when I write that, but that, that's that's that, that'll probably be written this new year. Mhm. So is that a, is that a new uh, genre for you, sort of calling up um, dead people, or or have you done that before? And how successful well, were you? <laughs> I think, I, that will be in terms of specific fans, and this will be on, in a play form. But I don't expect to actually do it, but oh, maybe I should have researched. That, that's in a way it's new, but in a way, ghosts and spirits have long been in my work. Mount Misery, which I believe mm-hmm. you saw, have lots of, mm-hmm. you know, it wasn't so much the ghost of young Frederick Douglass. It was Fred, young Frederick Douglass himself, but a lot of people read it as a ghost story, um, which is fine if they want to have that interpretation. El Rio has ghostly, some ghostly characters in it, one in particular. And so I mean, I will say that I'm always drawn to history, and I do feel like um, connections to what came before can – I mean, it makes, it makes some of the richest storytelling and can really you – know, even if it's a story set in the present, like El Rio is having that um, connection to – like an open door to the past, and then co- in a way conjuring, conjuring that um, those spirits and inviting them, inviting them into the now. I think can really make for fantastic storytelling. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, you are a phenomenal storyteller. Wow, wow. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. And um, so, why did you move to New York? Um, how come you're not here anymore? Oh, it's the theater. <laughs> it's the theater theater capital of of the United States and one of the theater capitals of the globe. So I, I, oh, I moved, okay. I moved there in order to uh, advance my career. Okay. And is it going well? Um, as you know, it's not that you're there. It's going well. I've greatly extended my uh, theatrical community. And although ironically mm-hmm. since moving, most of my, most of my work in terms of presenting my plays has been back in California. So, you know, what does that <laughs> mean? I don't know. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, maybe you'll be the bridge, um, you know, um, between the two uh, coasts. Oh, I'd be honored. I'd be honored. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Cool. Well, gosh, I definitely want to be in the house when you come back and talk to Idris. And, um, uh, excellent. Wow. And, and, yeah, we look yeah, forward to welcoming yeah. you. Mm-hmm. Super. Yeah, yeah. Well, safe travels. And, wow, thank you so much for this wonderful conversation. And uh, maybe the next time we talk we could um, incorporate um, your um, climate activism, you know, um, that, oh, that you have – Embarked on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think oh, definitely. Mm-hmm. No, go ahead. Just one minute on that because it's so important. So yes. I'm about to start a, a job uh, in New York City at the Climate Museum, which is the only museum in the United States so dedicated to climate change. The, oh. um, the mission is to cultivate a wide climate citizenry by which people talk about climate change with much greater frequency and then because people are concerned but kind of stay quiet about it um Mm -hmm. the global climate strike this past week notwithstanding and so talking about it with regularity as a necessary step towards taking action and so i would encourage this is an issue that is so urgent it's undeniable that this is happening um and it affects everyone regardless of where you're living uh, what your what your race is, what your religion is, what your socio what your wealth level is. This is um it's the most dire moment and and we need all hands on deck and all voices and any skill you have can be used towards this effort. Even if you know you love to cook, okay, cook a meal for for uh for a bunch of climate activists so they can have a meeting, right? Um Mm-hmm. So I'm happy to talk with anyone about this issue, especially as I become more knowledgeable and more involved. But um, I do want to put out a call to an activist group, which is an international in scope. There's a thriving Bay Area chapter, and that is Extinction Rebellion. So if you just look up Extinction Rebellion. Extinction Canada, Rebellion. Or, oh, or, I like yeah, that. Or Extinction Rebellion, or Extinction Rebellion uh, Bay Area, you will be able to find um, – Find find info on them and 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 probably join their efforts. So, oh wow! Anyway, nice. thank you so much, Wanda. I so appreciate the time, and I look forward to seeing you in the house in a few weeks. And um, okay. and I appreciate it. Oh, you're quite welcome, Andrew. And uh, safe travels. And yeah, look forward to seeing you in um in a few weeks after your plays had a chance to like have a few runs and. Knock out the kinks and just get all Absolutely. ready to be present and say, "Oh my gosh, it's so wonderful!" <laughs> Excellent. I, I have high hopes. I have high hopes. Rehearsals have been fantastic. Oh yeah, you're, you're yeah, you've got some great folks, you know, representing those those marvelous characters you've developed. Yes, thank you. I appreciate it. <laughs> all okay. right, you take care. We'll talk soon. You too. Okay. Bye bye. You're welcome. Bye. bye. So I want to let audiences know that um, this weekend, this Friday, um, is a uh, – let me get the details here. Uh, just a second. Um, let's see. I was just looking at it. Um, this Friday is a pay-what-you-can uh, preview, 8 o'clock at Brava Theater Center. 
in the Mission in San Francisco. And uh, and then opening night and the party, after party, is on Saturday the 28th. And then Sunday there's a matinee at 3. Um, each Sunday, the October 6th, October 13th, and October 20th are matinees. And the Friday, Saturday are 8 o'clock uh, performances. And, uh, and again, um, the weekend of the 18th, 19th, 20th, closing weekend, um, there are going to be discussions with uh, the playwright whom we just spoke to, Andrew Saito, and director Idris Cooper, Anifa Walshe. And um, tickets are opening night, 35, general admission, uh, 25, early bird, 20, and, and then pay what you can on the 27th. And then it says, no one turned away for lack of funds, subject to availability. And I think that is throughout the run. So that's pretty cool. And I wanted to give you um wanted to give you the information about where the the theater is located. Um oh here it is. Twenty seven eighty one twenty fourth Street in San Francisco. And the phone number is four one five six four one seven six five seven or info at brava dot O R G. And again, uh Brava for Women in Arts, Bravo Theater. All righty. So while we're waiting for our next guest, oh, uh-oh, <laughs> to join us, um, going to play a little music. Um, I was thinking about uh, Amakela Gaston's Nature Boy, just because we're talking about rivers and migrations and ancestors. Very strange enchanted boy. They say he wanders very far, very far over land and sea. A little shy, sad of eyes, but very wise was a he. Magic day, he passed my way. They always spoke of many things. Fools and kings, all this he said to me. The greatest thing you'll ever learn is just to love. Thank you. 
Thank you so much. <laughs> so that was uh, Michaela Gaston. And um, <laughs> let's see, what are we going to play next? Um, we might stay on the uh, the river themes. Um, <laughs> oh, I like this one. Uh, we're going to play Ooh Chow. Love that one. I was going to play I've Known Rivers, but I really like Ooh Chow.
So that was uh, Dwight Tribble. Uh, ooh, child, love that song. And, uh, oh, I think that might be Damien. <laughs> Good morning, Hello. Damien. How are you? Hi. Good how rising, are you? Wanda. I am well. Good rising, uh, Leslie. Uh, Leslie is, no, she didn't make it, um, because <laughs> I was supposed to call her uh, well, back, and I've been like, she is. Yeah, can, <laughs> yeah, she's in her office. Can you text her while we talk? <laughs> or Absolutely. something? Um, okay, cool, Absolutely. cool. Congratulations on this wonderful, wonderful Midsummer Night's Dream. It is so lovely. Well, thank you. I'm so glad that you enjoyed it. Yeah, yeah, I was, I was, yeah, I've been dreaming about it. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a good thing. Mhm. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it it is a good thing. Um, so so tell me about you know the vision of having this, you know, melanated cast. Like, whoa, and and we we like we're like in Wakanda or something, right? Um. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, it's, it's kind of you know with, with Shakespeare, you, you can you can take few liberties with the language, but you can definitely take some liberties with placement. And um, mm-hmm. we wanted to be very careful about how placement was perceived. And um, there were, as I as I said before, we have a lot of smart people in the cast and a lot of passionate people. And we wanted to be very sensitive to the cultural differences. As you may know, we have Indians in the cast and Filipino mm-hmm. in the cast. So yeah. we wanted to we wanted to pay respect to the um, mythical existence of fairyland. At the same time, um, embrace those bodies that were present on the stage. And um, I think we found a happy medium, I think. <laughs> mm-hmm. But um, yeah. there was um, definitely a lot of discussion around it, and um, mm-hmm. we we walked carefully through it. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah this and it's a large cast too. I mean, there are a lot of you all. <laughs> yeah, it, well, you know, this this time around, it's normally Theseus and um, Oberon is a shared role. The same person does mm-hmm. it, and Hippolyta mm-hmm. and Titania. But mm-hmm. I I wanted more bodies, so mm-hmm. they were okay with. Splitting those roads up. Oh, just, okay. Just, I wanted that. I wanted that presence. I wanted that presence, mm-hmm. and I'm glad that that uh, Leslie was absolutely okay with that. And um, mm-hmm. yeah, me closer to what I wanted to see. So I really appreciate all of the uh, highly melanated actors coming out auditioning <laughs> in Marin because it doesn't happen much. You know, for one, it's across the mm-hmm. bridge, and you know, it's, when you're an equity actor, it, it it may be worthwhile. But when you're not an equity actor, it it can be a burden. So, mm-hmm. I was uh, very happy that so many did. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
And um, are any of these um, actors, is this their first time, um, you know, um, on the stage at um, for the 30th anniversary of um, Marin uh, Shakespeare Company? Is this their, like, debut there? Yes, many, most. Mm. I believe that nice. the, um, the ones who have, if I, if I can say the uh, OGs, if you will, would be, uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> well, myself, <laughs> um, uh, Catherine, Catherine Glenn Smith, she's amazing. She's been there a few times. And mm-hmm. Eliza Boardman, she's been there. She was with me last year with uh, Pericles, and she was also in, I believe, was it Twelfth Night? Uh, she was in another production there. And, and she's, mm-hmm. we, know, we know the run. And Karen. Karen as right. well has been there. Mm-hmm. Everybody else I believe was uh, the first time. And mm-hmm. what was really pleasant was my debut there. I believe it was Othello. That was right. a young man who was, in, who was in school, who was in the audience mm-hmm. at one of yeah. the matinees. And uh, and now he's Jacory Pierre. He's now on the stage with me in this production. So that really wow. Good. Yeah. 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 Wow. Yeah. That's amazing. And also, and also Michaela, who was at, uh, I believe, Oakland Tech and wouldn't help mm-hmm. with, with their production. So I believe the farm. And they came to mm-hmm. the production at theater first, and she's on the stage. So that mm-hmm. all feels great. <laughs> it does. Right. Yeah. Uh, here's Leslie. Hi, Hi Leslie. Right. Hi, perfect timing. We're just talking about all these wonderful actors, um, and some of whom, um, you know, this is their Marin uh, Shakespeare Company debut. But not the last time you'll see them on our stage. They're fabulous. <laughs> <laughs> right, yeah. Yeah, and um, and then I was also thinking about, you know, um, your artistic staff. I was um, looking at, you know, you've got composers, you've got, you know, with Christopher Grant, co-composer, um, uh, and then you've got Regina Evans, costume designer, and uh, and your scenic designer, um, uh, Mel Bratz. Um, like, she is awesome. And, yeah, I was just wondering if you could talk a little bit about the folks that we don't necessarily talk about because they're not on stage, but we see their, you know, the work behind the stage is, is sort of facilitates, you know, the production that we are witnessing in the audience. Sure. Uh, Chris Grant is just a really special composer. His when I, when I listen to his work, it's really contemporary, and I can only describe it as weird. He just uses strange sounds and instrumentations, and I thought this will be perfect for the magical world that we're trying to create with this production. And Chris mm-hmm. allows us, has allowed us to use his original music as our pre-show music, so you get to hear his music for an hour before the show begins as well. It's really, really cool. Yeah. And Mm-hmm. And Regina Evans, our costume designer, she is just one of my heroes in life. Um, she she uh, was just nominated for an award for her one-woman show, 52 Letters, which is about her experience and others' experience with sex trafficking. It's one of the most 
powerful and important pieces of theater in the Bay Area um, in in recent memory. And and Regina sheds a very brutal and powerful and true light on the plight of young women who are um, often against their will um, uh, sold and trafficked and live in a hell 24-7. And the Bay Area is one of the central locations for this kind of of hideous and and heinous crime uh, against these young women, uh, and Regina's plays just um, it it's it just makes you makes you want to help. And and Regina has a vintage clothing store in Oakland called Regina's Door, which is both a clothing store and a sanctuary for young women uh, who Regina helps uh, get out of this life. Um, So she's an amazing social activist, performer, costume designer. She's, when I first talked to her about doing the show, she said, well, here's how I work. I, I, I pray on it and I dream on it. And then the ideas come to me. And I was like, that is perfect for a midsummer night's dream. And when we started seeing her beautiful costume designs and her amazing color palette, it was just um, just stunning. One of the one of the great things about this production, Regina's costumes. Mhm. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Mhm. Yeah. And the choreography is awesome too. Who's the choreographer? Uh, her name is Lauren Godla, and. She's just a young, hip, Bay Area dancer. Her specialty is dancing suspended from bridges. She does a lot of aerial dancing and choreography. She was just amazing. Um, Mm -hmm. We loved working with Lauren. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. So so talk a little bit about about the work. Um, And it's, um, you know, concluding... Um, you know, this 30th anniversary um, season, which is so exciting, uh, you know, for your company. Congratulations again. Thank you. Well, I'm certainly happy to be, uh, to have the closing show be this uh, Mm -hmm. great new direction for the company. I mean, it's, um, the company has been pushing inclusion for a long time and, and today we're seeing the results with this production of that coming into its own and uh, I'm really hoping that more and more uh, actors of, of color in the Bay Area and even farther than that we have actors, well, an actor from New York would, would come and grace the stage and share the talent with the uh, a lot of the population who otherwise wouldn't get to see them because a lot of people just see shows in Marin, and some of them go out to Oakland, San Francisco, Berkeley. But there are some people who are just, you know, travel is, is a bit of a burden, but they are regular patrons to that theater, mm-hmm. and it's good for them to get a chance to see other artists showcase their talent. So I'm loving the direction. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you're artist in residence, right, Damien? I am. I am. Yeah. yeah. How much longer? Um, 
It's uh, every year we as look long at it, but we we're, can we're, keep them. Well, what I appreciate about Leslie and the company in general, they are they are kind enough to want me there, but they are generous enough to want me to spread my wings. And if something wonderful comes along, they are encouraging me to grab hold of it because it's, mm-hmm. they've definitely expressed, shown a genuine interest in my well-being, and I appreciate that. It, it, it's good to work for a company that you can feel cares about you, and uh, mm-hmm. I appreciate that. It makes it easy to show up to work. <laughs> right, right. So for our audience that's not familiar with um, the story of A Midsummer Night's Dream, perhaps you all could share the story and then and then talk about those drives, um, you know, um, to San Francisco um, that you tell us a little bit about um, in in the in the notes for the um, the program notes. Oh yeah, well Leslie, I think that's uh, that's your lane right there. You share that story and I'm just so wonderfully. <laughs> sure. It's it's actually a very easy to follow and accessible story, but when I start telling it it's gonna sound very complex. <laughs> the story starts with uh Theseus, who is um a a great hero of Greek mythology. He had many heroic and romantic adventures. He um, and and the latest his latest adventure is that he's battled against the Amazons, the fierce female warriors, and he has won the queen of the Amazon, Hippolyta, in battle. And the penalty for being bested by Theseus is she has to marry him. She's not too thrilled about this, and. Um, Theseus has been married several times before. She's a fiercely independent woman, but that's that's what happens when you get captured in battle. So Theseus is trying to tell her that may you know it's not going to be all that bad being married to me, and he says, "I wooed thee with my sword and won thy love, doing thee injury, but I will wed thee with a different key, with pomp, with triumph, and with reveling." So he's going to have a big party for their wedding. And it's and he's trying to say, it's going to be fun being married to me. So he sends the word out that he's looking for the very best entertainment for his wedding celebration a few days off. And then we meet a father named Aegeus who comes to Theseus with his daughter Hermia. And uh, Aegeus has come to ask Theseus to tell Hermia to obey him. Aegeus wants Hermia to marry Demetrius, but Hermia is in love with Lysander and wants to marry him, and Lysander loves Hermia back. Furthermore, Demetrius used to be engaged to Hermia's best friend, Helena, and he dumped her in order to try to marry Hermia. But Aegeus comes and he says to Theseus, tell my daughter she has to obey me and tell her what's going to happen if she doesn't. So Theseus shares the law of the land, which is, you either marry the man your father wants you to marry, or you can become a nun and stay a virgin for the rest of your life, or we will put you to death. Pretty pretty harsh choices there. Um, 
But when Theseus hears about Demetrius's prior relationship with Helena, he decides he needs to talk talk to him about it, and they leave Hermia and Lysander alone on stage, and they decide rather than Hermia joining a, joining a convent or being put to death that they're going to elope. And Lysander has an aunt who lives across the forest, on the other side of the forest, and he says, let's run away tonight, and we can get married there. My aunt doesn't have any children. I'm her heir. We can have a really nice life on the other side of the forest. So that's what they decide to do. And when Hermia's best friend Helena comes in and expresses how upset she is that her fiancé has dumped her and is trying to marry her best friend, Hermia says to Helena, look, don't worry about it. You're not going to have to, you're not going to have to worry about me any longer. And she shares the secret that she and Lysander are going to elope. Well, Helena decides the best thing to do with that secret is to tell Demetrius and that maybe he'll like her more if she tells him the secret. So that night, Hermia and Lysander run off into the forest. Demetrius runs after to try to get Hermia back, and Helena runs after Demetrius to try to get him to love her. So we have all these young people running around in what turns out to be a very magical forest, because not only is this forest inhabited by fairies, but also the king and queen of the fairies have come here right now, and they are having a fight. They're having a big argument. And there's a couple parts to it. Um, the king of the fairies, Oberon, played by Damian Brown, <laughs> accuses Titania, his wife, uh, of having had an affair with Theseus. And he says, you just came here because Theseus is getting married and you just wanted to come see what that's all about. Now remember, Oberon and Titania are immortal, which means they have been married forever and they're going to be married forever. And over the course of a long marriage, you know, people fight, or even fairies fight, um, spouses fight. So they're fighting, and, and Theseus says, you're, uh, Oberon says, you're just here to see Theseus. And, and Titania says, don't tell me, you know, you're just jealous. Don't, don't talk to me about it. I know you just had a fling with some little shepherdess. Um, and they, <laughs> the accusations fly um, meanwhile, we also learned that Titania has a little boy, a changeling child. His mother used to be a devotee of hers, and they were very close friends. Um, the, this mother would um, sit with her and laugh with her and tell her stories and get her anything she wanted. But she was mortal, and she died, leaving behind this child. And Titania's taken him, and Oberon wants him. And this fight is cosmic because these are the king and queen of the fairies and when they are out of whack and out of alignment all of nature becomes out of alignment as well the roses grow um, on the god of winter and um, storms happen and the humans can't get their crops in and all of nature's out of whack so Titania leaves Oberon and says you know just stop asking me for this child and everything will be just fine. But that's not Oberon's plan. He decides instead that he's going to play a trick on, on Titania. And he has a sort of henchman fairy puck 
who does whatever Oberon asks him to do. Well, Puck is supposed to do whatever Oberon asks him, but Puck is really pretty mischievous. And he loves um, playing practical jokes on people and, and um, making, making people, um, making people flip up and fall and do things that makes him laugh. But Oberon says to him, I want, this is what I want you to do. You remember that time once we were sitting on a hill looking out over the, over the ocean and we saw the love god Cupid shoot from his bow an arrow drenched in passion and it missed its target and it fell instead on a little flower which used to be white and turned purple with the passion of Cupid's arrow. That flower has magical properties. If you put the juice of that flower in anyone's eyes while they're sleeping, when they wake up, the next thing they see, they'll fall madly in love with. And Oberon says to Puck, go get me that flower. I'm going to put it into Tanya's eyes. We'll make her fall in love with something else, and then I'll be able to get the child from her because she won't care about him so much. And he says, by the way, I saw all these young Athenians running around in the forest, and there was this young woman who was – so desperately in love with this young man who wouldn't give her the time of day. Go find that Athenian youth and put the love juice in his eyes too so that he'll fall in love with this young woman. And he's talking about Helena and Demetrius. Well, Puck Mm -hmm. gets the flower, finds a sleeping Athenian, but it turns out to be Lysander. So when Lysander wakes up and sees Helena, he falls in love with her, leaving Hermia behind. Oberon gets mad at Puck for screwing up, tells him to find Demetrius, <laughs> which Puck does. Puck puts the love juice in Demetrius's eyes. He wakes up and sees Helena. And now both of the young men who at the beginning of our story were in love with Hermia are now both in love with Helena, much to Hermia's dismay. Meanwhile, when the word went out that Duke Theseus was looking for the best entertainment, a group of amateur actors decided that they were going to write and, and uh, rehearse a play. And they're hoping they'll get chosen to perform at the wedding because they think if they get chosen that they'll get some money from it. Now, this is a common fallacy because nobody makes a decent living doing live theater. But uh, these amateur actors think that, that they're going to, Um, make some money and do the best play ever. They think their play is going to be so good that they don't want anybody else to steal their ideas. So they've snuck off into the forest to rehearse. And one of them, the lead actor, is named Bottom. And Puck puts a magic spell on him and turns him into something uh, fairly weird and grotesque. And that's who Titania sees when she wakes up. So Oberon's (laughs) able to get the child um, there, there's, there's an antidote flower which can take the love juice off of uh, infected people's eyes. Uh, eventually, the young lovers get all sorted out. Titania kind of forgives Oberon, but it's a long marriage. I'm not entirely certain that it's not going to be a little rocky moving forward as well, especially when she <laughs> figures out the trick he played on her. Theseus has his wedding celebration. Um, the amateur actors perform a, a, a tragedy, which is the funniest thing you've ever seen. And everybody goes off for their wedding night with the fairy blessing. And that's the story of A Midsummer Night's Dream. Yeah. Ta-da. Wow, you tell it really well, Leslie. 
<laughs> yeah, you you're a really great wow. You're a great storyteller. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, yeah, that was that was very well done. <laughs> so it's so funny. So I'm there on Sunday, um, this past Sunday, and Sunday is the last day of summer, and uh, and it's windy and kind of cold. And then the next day, the first day of autumn, you know, this Monday, two days ago, is mm-hmm. like, oh my God, we're like having record heat. Um, temperature is like a heat wave, and yesterday was hot, and today I think it's going to be hot, and then it's supposed to cool down a little later on this week. It's amazing. So we think, wow, a midsummer nice dream during a, a time of, um, you know, um, we're having a, a climate crisis <laughs> here, yeah. you know, on this planet. Um, and so anyway, yeah. I'm just thinking uh, how apropos, <laughs> you know, sort of the things we think about. Um, you know, when we're sitting there or when we're contemplating what's happening on stage and how it sort of resonates with us in our in our lives. Yes. Absolutely. Yes. And I wish there was a magic flower that could solve our current climate uh, crisis, but unfortunately there isn't. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's yeah. been more than a few people who have commented on the uh, – the monologue from Titania speaking to the mm-hmm. changing of the seasons and it is uh, people do feel it. Mm-hmm. People definitely see yeah. that. You know. mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. And and you know that's that's the beauty beauty of, of art and the beauty of theater. Um, you know, it's it's not just a show. <laughs> it's life, right? It yeah. is. And Especially working with Regina Evans on this show, we talked a lot about the idea of consent because all of the women in this play um, are, uh, are almost all of the women are forced to have a sexual relationship with somebody or, or, or someone's trying to force them sometimes. It doesn't always work mm-hmm. uh, with somebody who they don't want to have a relationship with. Um, and that is, um, you know, that is, that is the world that Regina lives in every day. And, um, so even in the most wonderfully silly romantic comedy, there, there are undertones of very serious things that are very contemporary. And, and that is part of the beauty of Shakespeare, the multi-layered facet and the complete bottomless depths of of these plays. They're not just one thing. They're so rich. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And you think about the manipulation, right? I mean, that's also, um, you know, sort of thematic in, in this work. Um, you know, we have uh, Lamar Maverick Harrison's wonderful Puck, who is doing the the work of of um you know of his lord you know Oberon you know your character <laughs> Damien and um and and then um but it's still manipulative it's not like um these things are are happening you know naturally if there is a, such a thing as you know natural in in Shakespeare particularly as comedies particularly you know we're in this magical yeah. force um but then we think about the spirits and, and spirits, the energy. I mean, that is, I mean, I believe that that's a real thing. You know, we do have energies that can, you know, can influence us, you know, um, to do one thing or the other. 
you know, luckily a lot of times we have choice, but if you're if your dreams are being manipulated when you don't like in the ways that you can't control, then it's like, Oh my goodness. You know, like, you know, um uh Tatiana, you know, Catherine Smith, um uh, my Glenn's, you know, wonderful queen of, of the uh the fairies, you know, Oberon's uh consort. You know, how she falls in love with an ass. Like, really? Like Really? Yeah. I mean, and, her and, and, her her consorts yeah. are like, really, Queen? Like, what? <laughs> <laughs> well, no one knows that what Oberon has done, and that is really my my of course my problem with the character. Oberon is a jerk for that, and um, it's of course this was written in the 15th century, uh, so mm-hmm. it's you know, 16th century, and and it was really. Um, kind of reflective on how the relationship, the dynamic was, the masculine and feminine. And um, it wasn't pretty. I don't think it's resolved well, <laughs> you know, especially in these days and times. And I can't help but think that um, Titania is going to definitely have her way in time in an eon of marriage. Mm-hmm. But I'm seeing things like that and listening to the story. I I am one of those people who firmly believe that we are out of whack in this, in the harmony of the universe because I think that we are too, um, we're too one-sided with the, uh, the patriarchal masculine energy. I believe that we're, mm-hmm. we've tilted past the breaking point with that. And um, mm-hmm. there needs to be a harmony. And, and that balance has not been achieved. And, I personally think that it's not enough because of how far we've gone. It's not enough to bring that into balance. I think in order to get it into the right balance, there has to be a major, a major inoculation, (laughs) you know, from that desire to just take everything to the masculine. We, We need to infuse some feminine principle in this world and heavy doses in order to get there. And it's a hard thing to to give up the changeling child, the quest for that changeling child, and just accept mm-hmm. the queen's wish to have this child with good reason. Because when you hear that mm-hmm. monologue, I mean, Titania speaks in a manner in which any decent moral ethical human beings should be able to hear, understand, and agree that, okay, this is your right, and I'll honor it. But that was not there. And that male belief system of I must have my way, I want what I want, no matter what it costs mm-hmm. you, I think that's part of the problem with this whole imbalance. And I think that the universe reflects that in, in our climate change and all of those things, but those are my thoughts. Oh, and I did want to say, Maverick Harris, mm-hmm. yeah, he, he did a great job. He had a great, you know, physicality in that presence, but we also have Jeremy Marquis playing Puck as well, and he has a, a, his okay. own style that plays mm-hmm. so beautifully throughout the production, so I think we were fortunate to be able to get both looks of Puck's nature. I think that was that was really a treat for those who were able to see both. 
Yeah. So who was on Sunday? Was that Jeremy or that was or that was Maverick? Jeremy Marquis. Okay, yeah, because I was looking opens, like yeah. as I was like that doesn't look right. like Maverick. I'm like <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay. Yes. Yeah, he was. Yes. Jeremy was awesome. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Jeremy, okay. Jeremy's awesome. He's awesome. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm sure you'll yeah. see a lot of him in the Bay Area because uh, he is extremely talented. And he mm-hmm. catches on very, very quickly. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. Yeah, so, um, yeah. oh, sorry. Yeah, give our no, audiences no, the details about this, this coming week. Um, cause this, um, are you extending or is, is um, the run concluding this weekend? Sadly, we are unable to extend. So please come mm-hmm. this weekend mm-hmm. to see the show. Thursday, Friday, okay. Saturday, Sunday. Yeah. 8 o'clock mm-hmm. Thursday, 8 o'clock Friday. There's a student matinee, however, 11 o'clock Friday is also. 8 o'clock on Saturday and closing at 4 p.m. on Sunday. Okay. And one of, the, All right. awesome. one of the lovely things, I'm so happy with this production. Um, we received for the first time a Shakespeare in American Communities grant from the National Endowment for the Arts, and that's allowed mm-hmm. us to provide transportation for hmm. um, 1,500 school kids to come see this show and also offer um, a, a classroom visits from some of our actors. Damien's been into the schools, uh, some of the schools already, to talk to the kids about the play. And that's so exciting to me because a lot of the kids who are coming are kids of color, and for them to see a cast that looks like them is um, super exciting. Yes. Wow. Yes, we love all the kids showing up. But I tell you, there's a a special theme. Those East Bay youngsters uh, show up in the place, and you can see the light and feel the energy when they see that heavily melanated cast come on the stage in mass, and they just start cheering because there's just unfortunately something they don't expect to see. Mm-hmm. That should not be so uncommon. So right. it's good yeah. to be able to provide that. So we want to keep doing that. And I, a lot mm-hmm. of a lot of uh, thanks go to the vision of uh, Leslie, Bob Ferrier, and the, the board of Marine Shakespeare Company for seeing the importance of that and moving into action to make certain that it's happening. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, certainly, certainly. Um, yeah, I was wondering, um, sort of um, in closing, if, if you all could talk about um, just, um, you know, those those drives that you talk about, um, you know, um, both you, um, uh, Leslie and Damien, um, you know, sort of driving uh, together, I guess, to Stockton to share yeah. your love of Shakespeare with highly at-risk young men at two youth prisons. Um, yeah, and, um, and and sort of the whole idea of, of this particular um, look to A Midsummer Night's Dream, um, which I don't know, I don't know that I've ever seen this look, you know, having, you know, these, uh, these characters in, um, you know, sort of robes and, and a... And costumes that that call to mind, you know, the African uh, continent and the ancient and present, you know, 
nations of of this you know this large place um, that has lots of countries and people think of it as a country mm-hmm. but it's not. Yes. <laughs> and um, yes. yeah, yeah, and um, just sort of what that call what that brings to mind, you know, as we see, you know, um, your character um, Oberon, you know, as an African leader, right, and and his queen. Yes. Um, and, and then, and then we see, you know, um, Theseus, um, you know, Todd, uh, Rigsby, you know, really, you know, regal c- carriage, uh, of that particular character. And then, uh, uh, Hippolyta, is that how do you pronounce, um, the character's name? Hippolyta. Hippolyta. Yeah, Hippolyta, right. Yeah. Eliza, um, how do you pronounce Eliza's, um, last name? Boyden? Yeah. Yes, I believe it's Boyden, Eliza Boyden. Boyden. Evans, uh, yeah, you know, as an Amazon, you know, goddess that has been captured, and now, you know, this guy, um, you know, so what? He's a king, you know, he's my captor. He's like, I want you to marry me, <laughs> you know. It's like, oh, you have to marry me. Like, there's no choice. And I'm like, you know, all this power, like these guys just swaggering, right? These these male characters, just like all this swag, <laughs> and you yeah. know, and yeah, it's like. I ask you, but really, you really don't have a choice. And yeah, so anyway, right. <laughs> to, to his yeah. credit, Theseus. To his credit, Theseus spends the entire play trying to woo Hippolyta and you know mm-hmm. convince her that he's a he's not a terrible guy and that he's going to treat her really well. <laughs> um, yeah. So, but um, this play was written in a time when. Preachers, ministers from the pulpit would encourage uh, husbands to beat their wives if they weren't um, obedient. And there was a very built-in um, sense of male domination in, in Shakespeare's world. So I think um, understanding that um, the, the culture that this play came out of helps us see similarities and differences to our world today. Mm-hmm. Yes. It's uh, back to the consent, you know, that's um, sadly something written that long ago can still see shadows of the same problem, Well, not even shadows, but full figures. <laughs> and 2019 is alarming, really. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. Yeah, it's... It, yeah, it's really great, you know, um, sorry to interrupt you, Damien, but it's really great, you know, sort of how in-your-face this is and, and how it really makes us think about um, sort of these women coming forward um, to talk about um, consent and how the absence of consent has um, has ruined careers, has ruined lives, and, and, and they're not going to be silent anymore. Because this is nothing new. I mean, fifteen hundred, right? <laughs> you know, we're talking about right. this like what? Yeah. So it's really great. You know, it's it goes down lightly because it's a comedy, but it still it lingers. Like I was telling you, like I'm dreaming about the play. <laughs> yeah. Oh, great. Yes, I I I I can't help but think about the uh, the whole move with the Spencers. If you you look at the changing child as a, a, a woman's right to own land and property and through trickery mm-hmm. or legal codes, it's just taken away, you know? 
these mm-hmm. things have played out too often. They played out way too often. So, um, yeah, we have to be we have to be aware of that. So I'm never happy being Oberon. <laughs> I tell the story, but <laughs> I certainly don't mm-hmm. don't agree with Oberon's uh, moral compass. But um, it's it's good for people to see and discuss, especially young people, to see and have an opinion mm-hmm. and express where they are with that. You know, mm-hmm. and then it gives an opportunity to talk about, you know, the 1500s and, and how these things started to be built up and just dug in. So, yeah, mm-hmm. but yeah. going to get back to the uh, the trips, taking taking this same opportunity to to young people who are incarcerated in juvenile prisons, which is a shame, you know, is there are some eye-opening moments for them um, studying the works of Shakespeare as well. And there's also opportunity for them to reach deeper levels of expression from immersing themselves into the work. And um, we've seen some great moments out of these young people in doing monologues and preparing to put on a play and uh, it's something that they never thought that they would really have an interest in. Mm-hmm. So um, that's always beautiful to see access is everything. And um, getting rid of that mindset that it's so easy to adapt of, yes, but not for me. Mm-hmm. We really want to get rid of that because this planet is theirs as much as it is anyone else who may feel themselves to be at the top of the food chain. You know, the planet doesn't belong any more to them than it does those who are considered by others to be at the bottom.